Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This is being recorded for the March 2021 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook and discussion of Leon Trotsky's Fascism, What It Is, and How to Fight It. If you like this video, please click the like button and the subscribe button, and consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks as usual to the Marxist Internet Archive at Marxists.org for hosting this file, as well as thousands of other free Marxist documents. Please go check them out and support them if you can. So let's get into the audiobook. This is again Leon Trotsky's Fascism, What It Is and How to Fight It, first compiled under the title Fascism, What It Is and How to Fight It by Pioneer Publishers in August 1944 and reprinted in 1964. This revised compilation was published in April 1969, transcribed for the internet by Zodiac, the former director of the Marx-Engels Internet Archive in August 1993. The pamphlet is not copyrighted. So we're going to start with the 1969 pamphlet introduction by George Levon Weissman. Liberals, and even most of those who consider themselves Marxists, are guilty of using the word fascist very loosely today. They fling it around as an epithet or political swear word against right-wing figures whom they particularly despise or against reactionaries in general. Since World War II, the fascist label has been applied to such figures and movements as Gerald L.K. Smith, Senator Joseph McCarthy, Senator Eastland, Barry Goldwater, the Minutemen, the John Birch Society, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and George Wallace. Now, were these all fascist, or just some? If some, then how does one tell which are and which aren't? Indiscriminate use of the term really reflects vagueness about its meaning. Asked to define fascism, the liberal replies in such terms as dictatorship, mass neurosis, anti-Semitism, the power of unscrupulous propaganda, the hypnotic effect of a mad genius orator on the masses, etc. Impressionism and confusion on the part of liberals is not surprising, but Marxism's superiority consists of its ability to analyze and differentiate among social and political phenomena. That so many of those calling themselves Marxists cannot define fascism any more adequately than the liberals is not wholly their fault. Whether they are aware of it or not, much of their intellectual heritage comes from the social democratic, reformist socialist, and Stalinist movements which dominated the left in the 1930s when fascism was scoring victory after victory. These movements not only permitted Nazism to come to power in Germany without a shot being fired against it, but they failed abysmally in understanding the nature and dynamics of fascism and the way to fight it. After fascism's triumphs, they had much to hide and so refrained from making a Marxist analysis, which would, at least, have educated subsequent generations. But there is a Marxist analysis of fascism. It was made by Leon Trotsky, not as a post-mortem, but during the rise of fascism. This was one of Trotsky's great contributions to Marxism. He began the task after Mussolini's victory in Italy in 1922 and brought it to a high point in the years preceding Hitler's triumph in Germany in 1933. In his attempts to awaken the German Communist Party and the Communist International, or Comintern, to the mortal danger and to rally a united front against Nazism, Trotsky made a point-by-point -point critique of the policies of the Social Democratic and Stalinist parties. This constitutes a compendium of almost all the mistaken, ineffective, and suicidal positions 
that workers' organizations can take regarding fascism, since the positions of the German parties ranged from opportunistic default and betrayal on the right, social democratic, to ultra-left abstentionism and betrayal, Stalinist. The communist movement was still on its ultra-left binge, the so-called third period, when the Nazi movement began to snowball. To the Stalinists, every capitalist party was automatically fascist. Even more catastrophic than this disorienting of the workers was Stalin's famous dictum that, rather than being opposites, fascism and social democracy were, quote, twins. The socialists were thereupon dubbed social fascists and regarded as the main enemy. Of course, there could be no united front with social fascist organizations, and those who, like Trotsky, urged such united fronts were also labeled social fascists and treated accordingly. How divorced from reality the Stalinist line was may be illustrated by recalling its translation into American terms. In the 1932 elections, American Stalinists denounced Franklin Roosevelt as the fascist candidate and Norman Thomas as the social fascist candidate. What was ludicrous as applied to U.S. politics was tragic in Germany and Austria. Recently, 1969, the term social fascism has begun cropping up in articles by members of the new left. Do those using it imagine that they have invented the term? Or, if they are aware of its history, are they indifferent to its connotations? After the Nazis came to power, the Stalinists boasted that their line had been 100% correct, that Hitler could only last a few months, and that a Soviet Germany would then emerge. The time limit for this miracle was extended from three, six, to nine months, and then the idle boasts dwindled into silence. The magnitude of the defeat suffered by the working class, the special character of fascism, distinguishing it from other reactionary regimes or dictatorships, became apparent to all, and the threat to the Soviet Union, or a rearmed German imperialism, began to take on reality. This brought about a change in Moscow's line in 1935, and the Communist parties throughout the world thereupon zigzagged far to the right, even to the right of the Social Democrats. This was their stance in the face of the spreading fascist danger in France and Spain. The military ruin of German and Italian fascism in World War II convinced most people that fascism had been destroyed for good and was so utterly discredited that it could never again entice any followers. Events since then, particularly the emergence of new fascist groups and tendencies in almost every capitalist country, have dispelled such wishful thinking. The illusion that World War II was fought to make the world safe from fascism has gone the way of the earlier illusion that World War I was fought to make the world safe for democracy. The germ of fascism is endemic in capitalism, and a crisis can raise it to epidemic proportions unless drastic countermeasures are applied. Since Forewarned is Forearmed, we offer this new compilation, a small selection from Trotsky's writings on the subject as a weapon for the anti-fascist arsenal. So that's the end of the preface or introduction from 1969. Uh, two points here, just commenting from S4A before we get into the main body. Uh, obviously, number one, Trotsky and Stalin did not get along. Uh, both were inner circle revolutionaries who helped create the Soviet Union. Trotsky, after the death of Lenin, um, fell out completely, was expelled from the Soviet Union, 
went to live in a variety of other countries and was staunchly critical of uh, Stalin on pretty much everything. And I mean, Stalin, like anyone else, was not infallible and is worthy of criticism. Uh, my personal opinion is that Trotskyists really did no one any favors by creating the sect that they did uh, in response to that. And that's a whole story in and of itself. But just if you're new to this whole subject, uh, there is tremendous animosity between uh, Trotskyists and Stalinists. Interestingly, you know, there are a lot of Trotskyists still today because they've set up um, whole organizations that are explicitly devoted to Trotsky and his theories. You don't see really the same level at all with Stalin. It's just sort of more mainstream Marxism, Leninism. Um, so that is point number one. Point number two, as far as the rise of fascism, well, we're there again. It's 2021. Capital, certainly since the process of globalization in the 90s uh, took off, you know, particularly following the destruction of the Soviet Union, capital just started going all over the globe, making connections and trying to shore up its power without the opposition of the Soviet Union. Finally, you know, they were they felt very free to do as they wished. Um, we're now in a terrible place 30 years later. Terrible. Um, the far right has been rising and it's it's insidious. We've done a number of videos on this channel about the amount of right wing creep into progressive and, you know, socialist or social democratic circles. And um, I think some of that is naivete and lack of ideological grounding. I know that some amount of it is absolutely deliberate and a strategy to um, you know, since in the United States, for example, the Democratic Liberal Party has abandoned the left, the right's trying to pick them up under the guise of a left-right populist alliance. So that is absolutely a uh, danger that can lead to exactly what the subject of this document is all about. So without further ado, those two points, just as prefatory notes from me, let's get into the text. First section. Fascism. What is it? Extracts from a letter to an English comrade, November 15, 1931, printed in the Militant, January 16, 1932. What is fascism? The name originated in Italy. Were all the forms of counter-revolutionary dictatorship fascist or not? That is to say, prior to the advent of fascism proper in Italy. The former dictatorship in Spain of Primo de Rivera, 1923-30, to 30, is called a fascist dictatorship by the common turn. Is this correct or not? We believe that it is incorrect. The fascist movement in Italy was a spontaneous movement of large masses with new leaders from the rank and file. It is a plebeian movement in origin, directed and financed by big capitalist powers. It issued forth from the petty bourgeoisie, the slum proletariat, and even to a certain extent from the proletarian masses. Mussolini, a former socialist, is a, quote, self-made man arising from this movement. Primo de Rivera was an aristocrat. He occupied a high military and bureaucratic post and was chief governor of Catalonia. He accomplished his overthrow with the aid of state and military forces. The dictatorships of Spain and Italy are two totally different forms of dictatorship. 
it is necessary to distinguish between them. Mussolini had difficulty in reconciling many old military institutions with the fascist militia. This problem did not exist for Primo de Rivera. The movement in Germany is analogous mostly to the Italian. It is a mass movement, with its leaders employing a great deal of socialist demagogy. This is necessary for the creation of the mass movement. The basis for fascism is the petty bourgeoisie. In Italy, it has a very large base. The petty bourgeoisie of the towns and cities and the peasantry. In Germany, likewise, there is a large basis for fascism. It may be said, and this is true to a certain extent, that the new middle class, the functionaries of the state, the private administrators, etc., can constitute such a base. But that is a new question that must be analyzed. In order to be capable of foreseeing anything with regard to fascism, it is necessary to have a definition of that idea. What is fascism? What are its base, its form, and its characteristics? How will its development take place? It is necessary to proceed in a scientific and Marxian manner. How Mussolini Triumphed This is from What Next? Vital Question for the German Proletariat, 1932. At the moment that the, quote, normal police and military resources of the old bourgeois dictatorship, together with their parliamentary screens, no longer suffice to hold society in a state of equilibrium, the turn of the fascist regime arrives. Through the fascist agency, capitalism sets in motion the masses of the crazed petty bourgeoisie and the bands of the declassed and demoralized lumpen proletariat, all the countless human beings whom finance capital itself has brought to desperation and frenzy. From fascism, the bourgeoisie demands a thorough job. Once it has resorted to methods of civil war, it insists on having peace for a period of years. And the fascist agency, by utilizing the petty bourgeoisie as a battering ram, by overwhelming all obstacles in its path, does a thorough job. After fascism is victorious, finance capital directly and immediately gathers into its hands, as in a vice of steel, all the organs and institutions of sovereignty, the executive administrative, and educational powers of the state. The entire state apparatus, together with the army, the municipalities, the universities, the schools, the press, the trade unions, and the cooperatives. When a state turns fascist, it does not mean only that the forms and method of government are changed in accordance to the pattern set by Mussolini. The changes in this sphere ultimately play a minor role. But it means, first of all, for the most part, that the workers' organizations are annihilated, that the proletariat is reduced to an amorphous state, and that a system of administration is created which penetrates deeply into the masses and which serves to frustrate the independent crystallization of the proletariat. Therein precisely is the gist of fascism. I want to comment on that quickly. So what we've read so far is distinguishing from Primo de Rivera in Spain, being an aristocrat, not of the masses, occupying a high military and bureaucratic post and being chief governor of Catalonia, accomplishing an overthrow with the, state, with the aid of state and military forces, versus Mussolini's movement being plebeian in origin from the masses, the petty bourgeoisie, slum proletariat, 
and just the proletarian masses themselves to some extent, but directed and financed by big capitalists from behind the scene. And then Mussolini, leading it, arises from the movement a former socialist himself. So basically fascism is a movement coming from the masses, but then on puppet strings from big capitalists. This, to me, sounds most like the libertarian movement in the United States, um, where you have a lot of petty bourgeois uh, reactionaries who just think that the answer to their troubles as small capitalists is to completely cut capital free of any restrictions, which, of course, is not going to help them. That's just going to help the big capitalists crush them further. And, of course, it's directed and financed by big capitalists like the Koch brothers, for example. Something like Trump, you also have a lot of... I mean, Trump, again, he's not from the masses himself. This is still in the proto-fascist, but getting closer and closer all the time. Um, the people that he's drawing out, though, I believe that that movement, the MAGA movement is going to start generating Mussolini's at some point. People who are more, you know, internal to that movement. Uh, we haven't seen any rise to the kind of prominence that Mussolini has, you know, or did rise to in his day. But um, this is what you have to worry about. It's one thing to have imperialism that is, you know, run by the 1% and administrated by the 1%. It's another thing when you start getting into reactionary mass movements of this kind. Uh, especially, as Trotsky says in the second part, how they use socialist demagogy and socialist rhetoric to build these movements, even though they're definitely not trying to build socialism. They do it to co-opt that kind of radical revolutionary energy. And then ultimately, quote, the proletariat is reduced to an amorphous state and a system of administration is created which penetrates deeply into the masses and which serves to frustrate the independent crystallization of the proletariat. So once they've got this movement going, they're able to go into the proletariat and um, prevent the proletariat from organizing, from crystallizing, as he says, but from organizing, from forming unions. And look at the state of the U.S. left today. For decades now, our institutions have been shattered, and as soon as you try to make an org, it gets infiltrated, it gets disrupted, the crystallization is prevented. I think that um, this is entirely relevant. So let's continue on here. Italian fascism was the immediate outgrowth of the betrayal by the reformists of the uprising of the Italian proletariat. From the time the First World War ended, there was an upward trend in the revolutionary movement in Italy. And in September 1920, it resulted in the seizure of factories and industries by the workers. The dictatorship of the proletariat was an actual fact. All that was lacking was to organize it and draw from it all the necessary conclusions. The social democracy took fright and sprang back. After its bold and heroic exertions, the proletariat was left facing the void. That disruption of the revolutionary movement became the most important factor in the growth of fascism. 
In September, the revolutionary advance came to a standstill, and November already witnessed the first major demonstrations of the fascists, the seizure of Bologna. And there's a note here in the text. The fascist campaign of violence began in Bologna, November 21st, 1920, when the Social Democratic Councilman, victorious in the municipal elections, emerged from City Hall to present the new mayor. They were met by gunfire in which 10 were killed and 100 wounded. The fascists followed up with, quote, punitive expeditions into the surrounding countryside, a stronghold of the Red Leagues. Black shirt action squadrons in vehicles supplied by big landowners took over villages in lightning raids, beating and killing leftist peasants and labor leaders, wrecking radical headquarters, and terrorizing the populace. Emboldened by their easy successes, the fascists then launched large-scale attacks in the big cities. Comment from S4A. We already see rampant right-wing violence of this type that is not just directed by the police or something like that. We already see this kind of violence from random right-wingers in the United States. I also, I'm going to throw something else out here before we get back to the text. Trotsky posits that basically... Uh, Italy was in a, you know, revolutionary moment in the late teens up to 1920, basically saying that they had already seized the means of production. So the dictatorship of the proletariat was a fact. All they had to do was like solidify it. But the social democratic or Marxist leadership sprang back. They got afraid. And so that moment left hanging basically went foul. It occurs to me to ask, have we ever had a comparable moment in the United States? One might say, no, we've never truly had a revolutionary moment in the United States. While there were outbreaks like the Seattle general strike in the teens, um, there was never widespread, even in a particular region, takeovers of the means of production. Nevertheless, you look at a movement like the late 60s, for example, like 68 was seen as a year of some revolutionary energy. And then in the 70s, when, you know, that revolutionary moment, if, again, it's not revolutionary quite in the same sense, but that was kind of the, the new left in the civil rights movements, uh, you know, peak, big stand, if you will, and whole lots of protests going on, very energetic year. And then it didn't turn into revolution. It didn't, you know, succeed, go all the way and achieve a higher level and a resolution. It started going bad. Um, there's a huge turn towards individualism. And we get neoliberalism starting about a decade later. Again, not quite the same. Then again, the United States is not the same country as Italy. It's much, much larger Things do work on a different timeline. Maybe I'm drawing connections where there aren't any, but this idea of the promise of socialism going so close and yet unfulfilled, then turning bad as a pretext for right-wing takeover that Trotsky is about to continue to describe. Anyway, that captures my imagination a little bit in terms of U.S. history. All right, let's get back to the text. True, the proletariat, 
even after the September catastrophe, was capable of waging defensive battles. But the social democracy leadership was concerned with only one thing, to withdraw the workers from combat at the cost of one concession after another. The social democracy hoped that the docile conduct of the workers would restore the, quote, public opinion of the bourgeoisie against the fascists. Comment. In other words, the workers started behaving really nicely. Their ardent enemies, the bourgeoisie, <laughs> would step in and uh, stop those fascist bullies saying, hey, you know, these workers are nice kids. Moreover, the reformists even banked strongly upon the help of King Victor Emmanuel. Wow. To the last hour, they restrained the workers with might and main from giving battle to Mussolini's bands. It availed them nothing. The crown, along with the upper crust of the bourgeoisie, swung over to the side of fascism. Convinced at the last moment that fascism was not going to be checked by obedience. Comment. Anyone? Any, is this ringing a bell at all? When we talk about reformists trying to get right-wingers to behave themselves and obey common decency, anyone? The Social Democrats finally issued a call to the workers for a general strike, but their proclamation suffered a fiasco. The reformists had dampened the power so long, in their fear lest it should explode, that when they finally, with a trembling hand, did apply a burning fuse to it, the powder did not catch. Two years after its inception, fascism was in power. I'd just like to note here, sometimes we lose perspective on this because World War II was such a short period. And also, we tend to think, I think, more of Hitler's Germany, which had a shorter reign. But fascism was in power in Italy for a long time. Early 20s through the 40s. That's a very long time. Over two decades. I, I find, at least myself, I don't think about that often. But I was doing some research on Mussolini, and I just really stopped and thought about that for a while. That's a long time. It entrenched itself thanks to the facts that the first period of its overlordship coincided with a favorable economic conjuncture, which followed the, de the Depression of 1921 to 22. So the fascists took power and then happened to coincidentally get a good economy, which made them look good. The fascists crushed the retreating proletariat by the onrushing forces of the petty bourgeoisie, but this was not achieved at a single blow. Even after he assumed power, Mussolini proceeded on his course with due caution. He lacked as yet ready-made models. During the first two years, not even the constitution was altered. The fascist government took on the character of a coalition. In the meantime, the fascist bands were busy at work with clubs, knives, and pistols. Only thus was the fascist government created slowly, which meant the complete strangulation of all independent mass organizations. So, as far as the lacking a model thing there, it's, he was taking his time, trying to disguise the threat that, and, and the, the threat of the harm that the fascist movement wished upon the workers' movements. Anyway, it's, it's just chilling stuff. Back to the text. Mussolini attained this at the cost of bureaucratizing the fascist party itself. After utilizing the onrushing forces of the petty bourgeoisie, 
Fascism strangled it within the vice of the bourgeois state. Mussolini could not have done otherwise, for the disillusionment of the masses he had united was precipitating itself into the most immediate danger ahead. Fascism become bureaucratic, approaches very closely to other forms of military and police dictatorship. It no longer possesses its formal social support. In other words, it's no longer that popular mass movement. The chief reserve of fascism, the petty bourgeoisie, has been depicted. Only historical inertia enables the fascist government to keep the proletariat in a state of dispersion and helplessness. In its politics as regards Hitler, the German social democracy has not been able to add a single word. All it does is repeat more ponderously whatever the Italian reformists in their own time performed with greater flights of temperament. The latter explained fascism as a post-war psychosis. The German social democracy sees it in a Versailles or crisis psychosis. In both instances, the reformists shut their eyes to the organic character of fascism as a mass movement growing out of the collapse of capitalism. Note, the Versailles Treaty imposed on Germany after World War I, its most hated feature was the unending tribute to the victorious allies in the form of reparations for war damages and losses. The crisis referred to in the above paragraph was the economic depression that swept the capitalist world after the Wall Street crash of 1929. End of note. Fearful of the revolutionary mobilization of the workers, the Italian reformists banked all their hopes on the state. Their slogan was, help, Victor Emmanuel, exert pressure. The German social democracy lacks such a democratic bulwark as a monarch, loyal to the constitution, so they must be content with a president. Help, Hindenburg, exert pressure. There's a note, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, 1847 to 1934, general who gained fame in World War I and later became president of the Weimar Republic. In 1932, the Social Democrats supported him for re-election as a, quote, lesser evil to the Nazis. He then appointed Hitler chancellor in January 1933. While waging battle against Mussolini, which is to say retreating before him, Tarati let loose his dazzling motto, quote, one must have the manhood to be a coward. Filippo Tarati, 1857 to 1937, was a leading reformist theoretician of the Italian Socialist Party. The German reformists are less frisky with their slogans. They demand courage under unpopularity, which amounts to the same thing. One must not be afraid of the unpopularity which has been aroused by one's own cowardly temporizing with the enemy. Identical causes produce identical effects. Were the march of events dependent upon the Social Democratic Party leadership, Hitler's career would be assured. One must admit, however, that the German Communist Party has also learned little from the Italian experience. The Italian Communist Party came into being almost simultaneously with fascism. But the same conditions of revolutionary ebb tide, which carried the fascists to power, served to deter the development of the Communist Party. It did not give itself an accounting as to the full sweep of the fascist danger. It lulled itself with revolutionary illusions. It was irreconcilably antagonistic to the policy of the United Front. In short, it was stricken with all the infantile diseases. Small wonder, it was only two years old. In its eyes, fascism appeared to be only capitalist reaction. 
the particular traits of fascism, which spring from the mobilization of the petty bourgeoisie against the proletariat, the Communist Party was unable to discern. Italian comrades informed me that, with the sole exception of Gramsci, the Communist Party would not even allow for the possibility of the fascists seizing power. Once the proletarian revolution had suffered defeat, once capitalism had held its ground, and the counter-revolution had triumphed, how could there be any further kind of counter-revolutionary upheaval? How could the bourgeoisie rise up against itself? Such was the gist of the political orientation of the Italian Communist Party. Moreover, one must not lose sight of the fact that Italian fascism was then a new phenomenon, just in the process of formation. It would not have been an easy task, even for a more experienced party, to distinguish its specific traits. Note, Antonio Gramsci, 1891-1937, was a founder of the Italian Communist Party, imprisoned by Mussolini in 1926, died in prison 11 years later. He sent a letter from prison in the name of the Italian party's political committee, protesting Stalin's campaign against the left opposition. Taglati, then in Moscow as the Italian representative to the Comintern, suppressed the letter. Throughout the Stalin era, Gramsci's memory was deliberately effaced. In the period of de-Stalinization, however, he was rediscovered by the Italian Communist Party and officially enshrined as a hero and martyr. Since, there has been considerable international acclaim of his theoretical writings, particularly his prison notebooks. The leadership of the German Communist Party today reproduces almost literally the position from which the Italian communists took their point of departure. Fascism is nothing else but capitalist reaction. From the point of view of the proletariat, the difference between diverse types of capitalist reaction are meaningless. This vulgar radicalism is the less excusable because the German party is much older than the Italian was at a corresponding period. In addition, Marxism is enriched now by the tragic experience in Italy. To insist that fascism is already here, or to deny the very possibility of its coming to power, amounts politically to one and the same thing. By ignoring the specific nature of fascism, the will to fight against it inevitably becomes paralyzed. The brunt of the blame must be borne, of course, by the leadership of the Comintern. Italian communists, above all others, were duty-bound to raise their voices in alarm. But Stalin, together with Manuilski, compelled them to disavow the most important lessons of their own annihilation. And there's a note. Dmitry Manuilski, 1883 to 1952, headed the Comintern from 1929 to 1934. His removal heralded a switch from ultra-leftism to the opportunism of the Popular Front period. Later, he appeared on the diplomatic stage as a delegate to the United Nations. We have already observed with what diligent alacrity Ercole switched over to the position of social fascism, i.e. to the position of passively waiting for the fascist victory in Germany. Note on Ercole, this is the common turn pen name of Palmiro Togliatti, lived from 1893 to 1964. He headed the Italian Communist Party after Gramsci's imprisonment. He survived all zigzags in common turn line, but after Stalin's death, he criticized Stalin's rule, as well as some of its continuing features in the USSR and international communist movement. Next section. The fascist danger looms in Germany. This is from The Turn in the Communist International and the German Situation, 1930. 
The official press of the Comintern is now depicting the results of the September 1930 German elections as a prodigious victory of communism, which places on the order of the day the slogan of Soviet Germany. The bureaucratic optimists do not want to reflect upon the meaning of the relation of forces which is disclosed by the election statistics. They examine the figure of the increased communist vote independently of the revolutionary tasks created by the situation and the obstacles it sets up. The Communist Party received around 4,600,000 votes as against 3,300,000 in 1928. From the viewpoint of, quote, normal parliamentary mechanics, the gain of 1,300,000 votes is considerable, even if we take into consideration the rise in the total number of voters. But the gain of the party pales completely beside the leap of fascism from 800,000 to 6,400,000 votes. Of no less important significance for evaluation of the elections is the fact that the social democracy, in spite of substantial losses, retained its basic cadres and still received a considerably greater number of workers' votes, 8,600,000, than the Communist Party. Meanwhile, if we should ask ourselves what combination of international and domestic circumstances could be capable of turning the working class toward communism with greater velocity, we could not find an example of more favorable circumstances for such a turn than the situation in present-day Germany. Jung's noose, the economic crisis, the disintegration of the rules, the crisis of parliamentarism, the terrific self-exposure of the social democracy in power. From the viewpoint of these concrete historical circumstances, the specific gravity of the German Communist Party in the social life of the country, in spite of the gains of 1,300,000 votes, remains proportionately small. There's a note there on Young's noose. This is a reference to the Young plan. After Owen D. Young, American big businessman who was agent general for the German reparations during the 1920s, in the summer of 1929, he was the chairman of the conference which adopted his plan, replacing the unsuccessful Dawes plan to facilitate Germany's payment of reparations per the Treaty of Versailles. The weakness of the position of communism, inextricably bound up with the policy and regime of the Comintern is revealed more clearly if we compare the present social weight of the Communist Party with those concrete and unpostponable tasks which the present historical circumstances put before it. It is true that the Communist Party itself did not expect such a gain, but this proves that under the blows of mistakes and defeats, the leadership of the Communist parties has become unused to big aims and perspectives. If yesterday it underestimated its own possibilities, then today it once more underestimates the difficulties. In this way, one danger is multiplied by another. In the meantime, the first characteristic of a really revolutionary party is to be able to look reality in the face. In order that the social crisis may bring about the proletarian revolution, it is necessary that, besides other conditions, a decisive shift of the petty bourgeois classes occurs in the direction of the proletariat. This gives the proletariat a chance to put itself at the head of the nation as the leader. The last election revealed, and this is where its principal symptomatic significance lies, a shift in the opposite direction. Under the blow of the crisis, the petty bourgeoisie swung, not in the direction of the proletarian revolution, but in the direction of the most extreme imperialist reaction, pulling behind it considerable sections of the proletariat. That's... Just such a key sentence, and we were talking about this 
earlier about this is a fundamental part of fascism is the buy-in of the petty bourgeoisie to basically being jerked around by capitalist, bigger capitalist interests. I'm going to read that again. Under the blow of the crisis, the petty bourgeoisie swung not in the direction of the proletarian revolution, but in the direction of the most extreme imperialist reaction, pulling behind it considerable sections of the proletariat. I think that in the United States today, you just have so much buy-in from the proletariat and the petty bourgeoisie to U.S. imperialism. Half the country, half the electorate doesn't vote, but half of it does vote for blatantly imperialist parties. And, you know, the task before Marxists of raising the class consciousness and education um, to where that's just not the case um, intensely frustrating and until it's done and that may be a while we are very vulnerable to exactly this kind of thing um, this kind of you know populist um, again what Trotsky was talking about in the first section which is this mass movement uh, involving the petty bourgeoisie and other sectors including the proletariat who get pulled into this alliance, which really is manipulated by capital behind the scenes. We've been talking about this on the channel for some time now in the current context of the U.S. politics, which is just so damn frustrating to deal with. All right, back to the text. The gigantic growth of National Socialism is an expression of two factors. A deep social crisis throwing the petty bourgeois masses off balance and the lack of a revolutionary party that would be regarded by the masses of the people as an advanced revolutionary leader. Quick comment. What would the masses of the people in the United States today recognize as a revolutionary leader? What would the U.S. people, the masses, the proletariat, maybe even some of the petty bourgeois, what would they recognize and make into an acknowledged revolutionary leader. Do they even want revolution? I know I'm going Joe Biden here a little bit of, you know, the people don't want revolution. Well, people did get behind, I mean, in that context, people did get behind Bernie Sanders, faker and pretender that he was, in large numbers. And there was talk of revolution. Obviously, this wasn't actually a revolution, it was reform. But, um... At least as far as that goes, people do want change. Do people want revolution beyond... We know that people want change. Do they want revolution? What do you think? Leave a comment below. Back to the text. If the Communist Party is the party of revolutionary hope, then fascism as a mass movement is the party of counter-revolutionary despair. When revolutionary hope embraces the whole proletarian mass, it inevitably pulls behind it on the road of revolution considerable and growing sections of the petty bourgeoisie. Precisely in this sphere, the election revealed the opposite picture. Counter-revolutionary despair embraced the petty bourgeois mass with such a force that it drew behind it many sections of the proletariat. Comment, well said. I applaud that. Um, if you're going to sum up the political atmosphere, attitude, and mood pretty well, 
I think counter-revolutionary despair would sum it up pretty well. In fact, the Bernie Sanders thing, I thought, honestly, was the first thing I have seen in my lifetime that really served as, you know, any respite from that counter-revolutionary despair of 40 years of neoliberalism. It's one of the reasons I supported it. Bernie Sanders wildly surpassed even my timid expectations. Uh, He said he was just going to stay in and just at least keep a foot in the door, and he didn't even do that. But that, I mean, I was just commenting about the desperate and pathetic and hopeless, seemingly hopeless situation. Precisely in this sphere, the election revealed the opposite picture. Counter-revolutionary despair embraced the petty bourgeois mass with such a force that it drew behind it many sections of the proletariat. I think um, you also see the same way that Bernie had some legitimate hope effect and broke that despair. Uh, Trump largely did the opposite, deepened the counter-revolutionary despair. And uh, you look at these MAGA people who are, yes, they have economic interests and racist ideology, etc. But it's, it's a little bit like flat earthers. Did they even really believe it? Or are they just acting out some expression of contrarianism that something is so broken in their minds that they feel like expressing what is obviously an irrational and ludicrous position uh, in fact, I, I even saw uh, an excerpt of a discussion between a flat earther and a normal person. And the flat earther was like, it's not even about the earth being flat or not. Really? Because that's literally the name of what you're saying. How you're identifying. <laughs> it's the despair. It's the despair. How do we, as socialists, counter that despair? Because, honestly... I, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. You know, for me, having an understanding of what's going on in society, I feel a little bit less blown around by the winds of material for, you know, of, of what's actually happening. I feel a little bit more like I uh, can hone and concentrate my power of resistance and refusal to get involved in the more obvious traps and, you know, to hold out. But I think I've had COVID twice. So, I mean, there's a limit to how much you can actually do that. For example, for just one example, like you can try not to get drawn into it. I think my knowledge has helped to fight that despair somewhat. That's part of why I do this channel. But man, do we have to work on raising that tide of hope without succumbing to what Trotsky said earlier about the illusions of revolutions right around the corner. It's really not. It's really not. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of uprisings that show, again, maybe some hope of people aren't going to take it lying down. But that can easily get uh, swept up into some pretty fucked up expressions. On that note, let's get back to the text. Fascism in Germany has become a real danger. As an acute expression of the helpless position of the bourgeois regime, the conservative role of the social democracy in this regime, and the accumulated powerlessness of the Communist Party to fight it. Whoever denies this is either blind 
or a braggart. The danger acquires particular acuteness in connection with the question of the tempo of development, which does not depend upon us alone. The malarial character of the political curve revealed by the election speaks for the fact that the tempo of development of the national crisis may turn out to be very speedy. In other words, the course of events in the very near future may resurrect in Germany on a new historical plane the old tragic contradiction between the maturity of a revolutionary situation on the one hand and the weakness and strategical impotence of the revolutionary party on the other. This must be said clearly, openly, and above all, in time. Comment. And of course, in the U.S., we don't have a revolutionary party. So even, even if the uprisings that started in 2020 turn into a revolutionary situation, we don't have anything like a revolutionary party. In fact, you have left-right populist alliance parties like MPP or something striving to fill that void, or the Libertarian Party. So what do you do when you have a revolutionary situation and no revolutionary party? You may wind up with fascism, this, argument, this document is arguing. I, yeah, that uh, I think pretty well articulates a lot of my anxiety about the current situation. Continuing, from Moscow, the signal has already been given for a policy of bureaucratic prestige, which covers up the mistakes of yesterday and prepares tomorrow's by false cries about the new triumph of the line, monstrously exaggerating the victory of the party, monstrously underestimating the difficulties, interpreting even the success of fascism as a positive factor for the proletarian revolution. Comment, that would be accelerationism. Pravda nevertheless explains briefly, quote, the successes of the party should not make us dizzy. The treacherous policy of the Stalinist leadership is true to itself even here. The analysis of the situation is given in the spirit of uncritical ultra-leftism. In this way, the party is consciously pushed on the road of adventurism. At the same time, Stalin prepares his alibi in advance with the ritualistic phrase about dizziness. It is precisely this policy, short-sighted, unscrupulous, that may ruin the German Revolution. Footnote there. This paragraph did not appear in the edition of the pamphlet used to digitize this text, but it has appeared in other editions. So in a comment... That, that policy may ruin the German Revolution. Well, no comment on what the cause was, but of course the German Revolution did not happen. East Germany did function as a socialist society for a while. The whole of Germany did not, and Germany was in fact ruined, inflicting and suffering enormous hardship before any of that happened due to fascism. Can the strength of the conservative resistance of the social democratic workers be calculated beforehand? It cannot. In the light of the events of the past year, this strength seems to be gigantic. But the truth is that what helped most of all to weld together social democracy was the wrong theory of the Communist Party, which found its highest generalization in the absurd theory of social fascism. To measure the real resistance of the social democratic ranks, a different measuring instrument is required that is, a correct communist tactic. With this condition, and it is not a small condition, the degree of internal unity of the social democracy can be revealed in a comparatively brief period. 
In a different form, what has been said above also applies to fascism. It emanated, aside from the other conditions present, in the tremblings of the Zinoviev-Stalin strategy. What is its force for offensive? What is its stability? Has it reached its culminating point, as the optimists ex officio, Comintern and Communist Party officials, assure us? Or is it only on the first step of the latter? Comment. It's just so chilling to read this. <laughs> like, bef you know, knowing the ultimate outcome of uh, reading about them watching the rise of fascism and speculating on it. It's just terrifying. Continuing. This cannot be foretold mechanically. It can be determined only through action. Precisely in regard to fascism, which is a razor in the hands of the class enemy. The wrong policy of the common turn may produce fatal results in a brief period. On the other hand, a correct policy, not in such a short period, it is true, can undermine the positions of fascism. And a note on the Zinoviev-Stalin strategy, Gregory Y. Zinoviev lived 1883 to 1936, chairman of the Comintern from its founding in 1919 until his removal by Stalin in 1926. After Lenin's death, Zinoviev and Kamenev made a block with Stalin, the Troika, against Trotsky and dominated the Soviet party. In the period of the Zinoviev-Stalin domination of the Comintern, an opportunist line led to a series of defeats and missed opportunities, most notably the calling off of the German Revolution of 1923. After breaking with Stalin, Zinoviev united his following with the Trotskyist left opposition, but in 1928, after the expulsion from the party of the United Opposition, Zinoviev capitulated to Stalin. Readmitted to the party, he was expelled again in 1932. After disavowal of all critical views, he was again readmitted, but in 1934, he was expelled and imprisoned. He, quote, confessed at the first of the great Moscow trials in 1936 and was executed. If the Communist Party, in spite of the exceptionally favorable circumstances, has proved powerless, seriously, to shake the structure of the social democracy with the aid of the formula of, quote, social fascism, then real fascism now threatens this structure, no longer with wordy formulae of so-called radicalism, but with the chemical formulas of explosives. No matter how true it is that the social democracy, by its whole policy, prepared the blossoming of fascism, it is no less true that fascism comes forward as a deadly threat primarily to that same social democracy, all of whose magnificence is inextricably bound with parliamentary democratic pacifist forms and methods of government. Comment. I would agree with that. Um, I see this to this day online, people talking about social fascism. I have given that a lot of thought. Um, I agree wholeheartedly that social democracy being capitalist in nature uh, is imperialist. But fascism is a very special phase of a capitalist effort. That is, I mean, we're not quite halfway through this document. That is the subject of this document about the particular nature of fascism. Because fascism does away when it, you know, fully comes into flower and starts squirting its poison. It, uh, it's hostile itself to social democracy. So I think that that is correct to say that these are separate things. You can absolutely say that social democracy is imperialist, 
But again, imperialism and fascism are not synonyms. Um, you can say that they have some of the same characteristics, but fascism itself is a distinct phenomenon. Continuing. The policy of a united front of the workers against fascism flows from this situation. It opens up tremendous possibilities to the Communist Party. A condition for success, however, is the rejection of the theory and practice of social fascism, the harm of which becomes a positive measure under the present circumstances. The social crisis will inevitably produce deep cleavages within the social democracy. The radicalization of the masses will affect the social democrats. We will inevitably have to make agreements with various social democratic organizations and factions against fascism, putting definite conditions in this connection to the leaders before the eyes of the masses. We must return from the empty official phrase about the United Front to the policy of the United Front as it was formulated by Lenin and always applied by the Bolsheviks in 1917. That's the end of that section. I'd like to make a comment here before going on to the next section, an Aesop fable. Which is that some of this discussion was coming up in 2020 around the proposed election of Joe Biden, Democratic nominee for president, who nobody wanted to vote for, really. I mean, only like right-wing Democrats really wanted to vote for him. Everyone else was voting against Trump. I think the discussion is still valid of is a Joe Biden presidency still going to continue the conditions that were, you know, led to Donald Trump and that proto-fascism that has been growing and growing within and around the Republican Party in the United States for some time? Because as a mass movement, it's not growing out of the Democratic Party in the same way. Let's at least be honest about that, I hope. That you don't have right-wing militias coming out of the Democratic Party in the, the same way. It's just not the same. Um, the Democratic Party is absolutely helping lay the conditions for a Trump, for that mass movement to come about. By, I mean, they're as in bed with finance capital as the Republican Party are, who ultimately are pulling the strings here. But ultimately, the people going to MAGA rallies, those are not Goldman Sachs employees. They are Joe Schmo. They are the masses. And Jane Schmo. They are the masses getting pulled into a proto-fascist movement of the bourgeoisie that it may at some point, you know, develop a Mussolini from its own ranks. And I mean, they're already executing violence upon people. Actually, that's what I wanted to say. There, there is a phrase earlier in this document about when quote, the normal police and military resources of the bourgeois dictatorship together with their parliamentary screens no longer suffice to hold society in a state of equilibrium. Then the turn of the fascist regime arrives. So we can so far conceive of fascism as capitalism when it can no longer hold society in a state of equilibrium in the face of massive, massive contradictions piling up. The police won't cut it. 
The military resources won't cut it. The representative government won't cut it. We're seeing that. We're seeing in the United States that people aren't buying it. And we saw massive, massive widespread uprisings last year as a result. Well, what's been happening? The police aren't enough to contain your rally? Here, have a few right-wing militias that will basically serve as volunteer cops. Those organizations, the right-wing militias, you know, many of whom have overlap with uh, cops, too. There was a great article I've referenced multiple times by ProPublica a couple of years ago about uh, a Facebook group of about 10,000 members uh, with people. This was employees of the Customs and Border Patrol agents. And the stuff that they were sharing in this group was out and out as hostile as you could imagine to immigrants, you know, working people like classic fascist targets. I would say that right now we're on the border of, quote, the moment that the normal police and military resources of the bourgeois dictatorship, together with their parliamentary screens, no longer suffice. We're at the, the, the border of when they do suffice and when they don't. And it's when they don't that, according to Trotsky, the turn of the fascist regime arrives. Quote, through the fascist agency, capitalism sets in motion the masses of the crazed petty bourgeoisie. Check. We got that. And the bands of declassed and demoralized lumpen proletariat. We got that too. All the countless human beings whom finance capital itself has brought to desperation and frenzy. So it's a special metastasized form of capitalism that is there in a self-conscious way to, you know, rein in the leftists who brought about this situation, quote unquote, even though it's big capitalists who did it. But to them, everything's the leftists did it. Oh, the socialists. We don't have a single fucking socialist in the U.S. government. But nevertheless, the socialists are to blame. These are things a fascist says, and these are things that many... (laughs) in the right-wing mass movements in the United States say and believe. We're right on the border. We're right on the border. And I think in the last few years, we have probably stepped over that line of the fascist vigilantes are getting more and more mobilized to take charge. That, turn it over to us. We'll, We'll take care of it. We're the patriots. All this kind of stuff. We're the real Americans. We're, we're, we, you know, we really have the soul of the nation. We're, we're the custodians of the soul of the nation. And it's not enough as, you know, you see some well-meaning kind of boomer, you know, Bernie is the new FDR type people who are like, you know, dissent is patriotic. That stuff just doesn't cut it against fascism. It may be true, but, um, you know, that's not the point of whether it's true or not. The point is, how do you beat fascism? And definitely not with feeble, feeble um, attempts at reasoning with, um, well, the crazed petty bourgeoisie. All right. An Aesop fable. This is from What Next? Vital Question for the German Proletariat, 1932. Again, note the dates here in relation to the rise of Hitler. A cattle dealer once drove some bulls to the slaughterhouse. Sorry, I'm just... Has anyone seen Tommy Boy? Okay. 
A cattle dealer once drove some bulls to the slaughterhouse, and the butcher came nigh with his sharp knife. Let us close ranks and jack up this executioner on our horns, suggested one of the bulls. If you please, in what way is the butcher any worse than the dealer who drove us hither with his cudgel, replied the bulls, who had received their political education in Manwilski's Institute, the common turn. But we shall be able to attend to the dealer as well afterwards. Nothing doing, replied the bulls, firm in their principles, to the counselor. You are trying, from the left, to shield our enemies. You are a social butcher yourself. And they refused to close ranks. And that's the end of the section. So, of course, not sure I need to spell this out, but cattle dealer drives bulls to the slaughterhouse. The butcher comes out to slaughter them. And uh, they want to treat the dealer and butcher equally, even though the butcher is the one with the knife in his hand coming directly for them. Yes, they're all invested in the deaths of the cattle. The butcher, though, is the one standing right in front of them with the knife and the immediate target. Yes, you know, run-of-the-mill Obama, Joe Biden, Bill Clinton-type imperialists, they create the system. They drive us to the slaughterhouse. They create the conditions that give rise to a Trump. And, you know, the, the, the mass movement that's all frenzied on, you know, we got to end socialism, even though there's not a trace of it. But they're not equal threats in the short term. Okay, fair enough. Next section, the German cops and army. This is also from What Next? Vital question for the German proletariat, 1932. In case of actual danger, the social democracy banks not on the iron front, but on the Prussian police. It is reckoning without its host. The fact that the police was originally recruited in large numbers from among social democratic workers is absolutely meaningless. Consciousness is determined by environment even in this instance. The worker who becomes a policeman in the service to the capitalist state is a bourgeois cop, not a worker. Of late years, these policemen have had to do much more fighting with revolutionary workers than with Nazi students. Such training does not fail to leave its effects, and above all, every policeman knows that although governments may change, the police remain. Note on the Iron Front. This was a block between several big trade unions and bourgeois Republican groups with little or no following or prestige among the masses. It was created by the Social Democrats. And of course, in this document, a comment from me, uh, when we talk about earlier, like pre-1920s use of the term social democracy, this was a blanket term meaning Marxists. By now in the 30s, the term of socialist communist has diverged from social democrat, uh, and Trotsky is now using the social democracy in the sense that we use it today, welfare capitalists, reformists. It was created by the Social Democrats towards the end of 1931. Combat groups called the Iron Fist were set up within the unions, and workers' sport organizations were brought into the Iron Front. However, its first parades and rallies, at which thousands of workers raised their fists, shouted freedom and swore to defend democracy. The masses in the Social Democratic Party and unions really believed that this organization would be used to stop Hitler. It was not. Um, comment there. Think of all the things the Democratic Party does that are completely feckless and useless to stop any of the right-wing groups that the working class is now threatened by. Okay. 
Continuing, in its New Year's issue, the theoretical organ of the social democracy, Der Freie Wort, what a wretched sheet, prints an article in which the policy of toleration is expounded in its highest sense. Hitler, it appears, can never come to power against the police and the Reichswehr, the German army. Now, according to the Constitution, the Reichswehr is under the command of the President of the Republic. Therefore, fascism, it follows, isn't dangerous so long as a president faithful to the Constitution remains at the head of the government. Bruning's regime must be supported until the presidential elections, so that a constitutional president may then be elected through an alliance with the parliamentary bourgeoisie, and thereby Hitler's road to power will be blocked for another seven years. Note, Heinrich Brunig was chancellor from 1930 to 32. Regular parliamentary government in Germany ended in March 1930. There followed a series of Bonapartist regimes, Brunig, von Papen, von Schleicher, etc., chancellors ruling not by ordinary parliamentary procedures, but by, quote, emergency decrees. These Bonapartist figures presented themselves as political saviors needed to get the country through its crisis, and thus as above class and party. They depended not on the old bourgeois democratic party system, but on their command of the police, army, and government bureaucracy. Pretending to be saving the nation from the dangers on both the left, socialists and communists, and the right, fascists, they struck their heaviest blows against the left, surprise, surprise, since their primary interest was saving capitalism. Sounds familiar. The politicians of reformism, these dexterous wire pullers, artful intriguers, and careerists, expert parliamentary and ministerial machinators, are no sooner thrown out of their habitual sphere by the course of events, no sooner are they placed face to face with momentous contingencies than they reveal themselves to be, there is no milder expression for it, inept bodies. To rely upon a president is only to rely upon the government. Faced with the impending clash between the proletariat and the fascist petty bourgeoisie, two camps which together comprise the crushing majority of the German nation, these Marxists from the Vorwärts, principal social democratic newspaper, yelp for the night watchmen to come to their aid, help government, exert pressure. Next section, bourgeoisie, petty bourgeoisie, and proletariat. This is from The Only Road for Germany, written September 1932, published in the USA, April 1933. Any serious analysis of the political situation must take as its point of departure the mutual relations among the three classes, the bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeoisie, including the peasantry, and the proletariat. The economically powerful big bourgeoisie, in itself, represents an infinitesimal minority of the nation. Comment, this would be like the 1%. To enforce its domination, it must ensure a definite mutual relationship with the petty bourgeoisie and, through its mediation, with the proletariat. To understand the dialectic of the relation among the three classes, we must differentiate three historical stages. At the dawn of capitalistic development, when the bourgeoisie required revolutionary methods to solve its tasks. In the period of bloom and maturity of the capitalist regime, when the bourgeoisie endowed its domination with orderly, pacific, conservative, democratic forms. And finally, at the decline of capitalism, when the bourgeoisie is forced to resort to methods of civil war against the proletariat to protect its right of exploitation. 
Um, and we are certainly in the decline of capitalism. The political programs characteristic of these three stages, Jacobinism, left wing of petty bourgeois forces in the great French Revolution, in the most revolutionary phase led by Robespierre, reformist democracy, social democracy included, and fascism are basically programs of petty bourgeois currents. So the three types, Jacobinism, reformist democracy, and fascism. This fact alone, more than anything else, shows of what tremendous, rather of what decisive importance, the self-determination of the petty bourgeois masses of the people is for the whole fate of bourgeois society. Comment, you could say that the petty bourgeois are more like the 10% or 15%, something like that. Um, it's still a very small minority, but certainly more numerous than the, than the big bourgeoisie, which is like the 0.01% to 1%. Nevertheless, the relationship between the bourgeoisie and its basic social support, the petty bourgeoisie, does not at all rest upon reciprocal confidence and pacific collaboration. In its mass, the petty bourgeoisie is an exploited and disenfranchised class. It regards the bourgeoisie with envy and often with hatred. Comment well said. The bourgeoisie, on the other hand, while utilizing the support of the petty bourgeoisie, distrusts the latter, for it very correctly fears its tendency to break down the barriers set up for it from above. So, commenting, so the bourgeoisie needs the petty bourgeoisie, but the petty bourgeoisie regards the bourgeoisie with envy and hatred because they have even more money than they do. And the bourgeoisie are aware that the petty bourgeoisie, being capitalists, tend to rise in wealth and therefore rival the big bourgeoisie. So it's a very uneasy relationship. And of course, you get a movement like fascism. It's empowering the petty bourgeoisie to at least think that they are going after the bourgeoisie, the big bourgeoisie. While they were laying out and clearing the road for bourgeois development, the Jacobins engaged at every step in sharp clashes with the bourgeoisie. They served it in intransigent struggle against it. After they had culminated their limited historical role, the Jacobins fell, for the domination of capital was predetermined. For a whole series of stages, the bourgeoisie entrenched its power under the form of parliamentary democracy, even then, not peacefully and not voluntarily. The bourgeoisie was mortally afraid of universal suffrage, but in the last instance it succeeded with the aid of a combination of violent measures and concessions of privations and reforms in subordinating within the framework of formal democracy not only the petty bourgeoisie, but in considerable measure also the proletariat by means of the new petty bourgeoisie, the labor aristocracy. In August 1914, the imperialist bourgeoisie was able, with the means of parliamentary democracy, to lead millions of workers and peasants into the war. Note, August 4, 1914 was the collapse of the Second International, the German Social Democratic Party representatives in the Reichstag voted for the war budget of the imperialist governments, and on the same day, representatives of the French Socialist Party did likewise in the Chamber of Deputies. But precisely with the war begins the distinct decline of capitalism, and above all, of its democratic form of domination. It is now no longer a matter of new reforms and alms, but of cutting down and abolishing the old ones. Therewith, the bourgeoisie comes into conflict 
not only with the institutions of proletarian democracy, the trade unions and political parties, but also with parliamentary democracy, within the framework of which arose the labor organizations. Therefore, the campaign against, quote, Marxism on the one hand, and against democratic parliamentarism on the other. But just as the summits of the liberal bourgeoisie in its time were unable, by their own force alone, to get rid of feudalism, monarchy, and the church, so the magnates of finance capital are unable, by their force alone, to cope with the proletariat. They need the support of the petty bourgeoisie. For this purpose, it must be whipped up, put on its feet, mobilized, and armed. But this method has its dangers. While it makes use of fascism, the bourgeoisie nevertheless also fears it. Pilsudski was forced, in May 1926, to save bourgeois society by a coup d'etat directed against the traditional parties of the Polish bourgeoisie. The matter went so far that the official leader of the Polish Communist Party, Worski, who came over from Rosa Luxemburg not to Lenin but to Stalin, took the coup d'etat of Pilsudski to be the road of the, quote, revolutionary democratic dictatorship, and called upon the workers to support Pilsudski. Note, Joseph Pilsudski, 1876-1935, was originally a socialist with nationalistic views. In 1920, he led the anti-Soviet forces in Poland. In 1926, he led a coup d'etat and established a fascist dictatorship. Worski was a friend of Rosa Luxemburg. He supported her differences with the Bolsheviks. When the Comintern zigzagged to the left in its third period phase, Worski was demoted from leadership in the Polish Communist Party, but not expelled. He disappeared in the USSR during the Great Purge of 1936-38. Rosa Luxemburg lived 1870-1919. She was a great revolutionary theoretician and a leader, originally active in the socialist movement of her native Poland. She later became a leader of the left wing of the German Social Democratic Party. She and Karl Liebknecht were imprisoned for opposing World War I. After their release, they led the Spartacusbund. Both were arrested and assassinated during the unsuccessful revolution of 1919. At the session of the Polish Commission of the Executive Committee of the Communist International on July 2, 1926, the author of these lines said on the subject of the events in Poland, quote, Taken as a whole, the Pilsudski overthrow is the petty bourgeois, plebeian manner of solving the burning problems of bourgeois society in its state of decomposition and decline. We have here already a direct resemblance to Italian fascism. These two currents indubitably possess common features. They recruit their shock troops, first of all, from the petty bourgeoisie. Pilsudski, as well as Mussolini, worked with extra-parliamentary means, with open violence, with the methods of civil war. Both were concerned not with the destruction, but with the preservation of bourgeois society. Quick side note, we did an audiobook recently of Lenin's The Black Hundreds and the Organization of an Uprising, which was about the uh, czarist government in Russia, their desire to foment a civil war, to try to crush the revolution. We can only imagine, you know, what would have happened if the revolution attempt of 1917 had failed, as prior attempts at revolution had failed in Russia. Because as we got now into the 1920s, it was the start of out-and-out -out fascist governments, which was a new step for the bourgeoisie. This was a new tactic of the bourgeoisie at that time. Something to keep in mind. Continuing. 
While they raised the petty bourgeoisie on its feet, they openly aligned themselves, after the seizure of power, with the big bourgeoisie. Involuntarily, a historical generalization comes up here, recalling the evaluation given by Marx of Jacobinism as the plebeian method of settling accounts with the feudal enemies of the bourgeoisie. That was in the period of the rise of the bourgeoisie. Now we must say, in the period of the decline of bourgeois society, the bourgeoisie again needs the, quote, plebeian method of resolving its no longer progressive, but entirely reactionary tasks. In this sense, fascism is a caricature of Jacobinism. The bourgeoisie is incapable of maintaining itself in power by the means and methods of the parliamentary state created by itself. It needs fascism as a weapon of self-defense, at least in critical instances. Nevertheless, the bourgeoisie does not like the, quote, plebeian method of resolving its tasks. It was always hostile of Jacobinism, which cleared the road for the development of bourgeois society with its blood. The fascists are immeasurably closer to the decadent bourgeoisie than the Jacobins were to the rising bourgeoisie. Nevertheless, the sober bourgeoisie does not look very favorably even upon the fascist mode of resolving its tasks, for the concussions, although they are brought forth in the interests of bourgeois society, are linked up with dangers to it. Therefore, the opposition between fascism and the bourgeois parties. So commenting, it seems at times like there is an opposition between a fascist party and the run-of-the-mill bourgeois imperialist parties. It's like, you know, a cop that normally just uses a billy club and a blackjack, and then a cop, you know, with like SWAT, and they're using like, you know, incredibly exotic, brutal weapons that produce a lot of blood, and the regular cops are like, oh, come on, man. That's dangerous. That's not tasteful. Both serve ultimately the same interests, bourgeois society, imperialist capitalism. But fascism is a distinct mode. They are the berserkers. They are when regular order fails what capitalism resorts to. But capitalism is still uneasy with resorting to it because it's not pacific. It's not, uh, it, it betrays this sense that they put out to the proletariat of like, hey, you know, capitalism is in your best interests, blah, blah, blah. Well, if it was in our best interests, what's with the jackboots? And the bourgeoisie doesn't like to admit that. Also, the bourgeoisie is afraid for itself. You know, you train the attack dog, one day the attack dog may bite you or your kids. So, anyway, but there is the opposition between fascism and the bourgeois parties, as Trotsky writes, there is a tension between the normal mode of capitalist imperialist government and the fascist mode of capitalist government. Continuing, the big bourgeoisie likes fascism as little as a man with aching molars likes to have his teeth pulled. The sober circles of bourgeois society have followed with misgivings the work of the dentist Pilsudski, but in the last analysis, they have become reconciled to the inevitable, though with threats with horse trades and all sorts of bargaining. Thus, the petty bourgeoisie's idol of yesterday becomes transformed into the gendarme of capital. End of quote. Back to Trotsky's main text. To this attempt at marking out the historical place of fascism as the political reliever of the social democracy, there was counterposed the theory of social fascism. 
At first, it could appear as a pretentious, blustering, but harmless stupidity. Subsequent events have shown what a pernicious influence the Stalinist theory actually exercised on the entire development of the Communist International. Does it follow from the historical role of Jacobinism, of democracy, and of fascism that the petty bourgeoisie is condemned to remain a tool in the hands of capital to the end of its days? If things were so, then the dictatorship of the proletariat would be impossible in a number of countries in which the petty bourgeoisie constitutes the majority of the nation, and, more than that, it would be rendered extremely difficult in other countries in which the petty bourgeoisie represents an important minority. Fortunately, things are not so. The experience of the Paris Commune, the first dictatorship of the proletariat, March 18, 1871, first showed, at least within the limits of one city, just as the experience of the October Revolution, the Russian Revolution of 1917, has shown after it on a much larger scale and over an incomparably longer period, that the alliance of the petty bourgeoisie and the big bourgeoisie is not indissoluble. Since the petty bourgeoisie is incapable of an independent policy, that is also why the petty bourgeois democratic dictatorship is unrealizable. No other choice is left for it than between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. I'm going to pause there again. It's an interesting point of how decisive the petty bourgeoisie is. We'll see as this document progresses, hopefully, what exactly Trotsky's prognosis is as far as the petty bourgeoisie's likelihood of siding with either the big capitalists or the workers, and how exactly communists in the proletariat can steer the petty bourgeoisie towards themselves without compromising their own aims. Is this possible? I would say that, you know, in a country like the United States, which has a sizable middle class, and the whole, you know, boomer generation was raised to think of itself as petty bourgeois and to be hostile to socialism. You know, these were decades where Marxism failed to win over the petty bourgeoisie who were firmly in the pocket of the big capitalists, fully invested in capitalism as an ideology and also somewhat literally, I mean, buying into the stock market and all that kind of thing. I mean, you could argue that since 2008, that trust has been eroding. You know, when people lost like a third or half of their net worth overnight due to the machinations of the casino bourgeois that were, you know, running micro trading and all this kind of crazy bullshit going on in the stock market. But um, how? how? How exactly do we do that? I've read a lot of Marxist theory so far, and I think that this thing of how to deal with the petty bourgeoisie. A lot of times when I see it in discussions today, uh, you know, Marxists today talking, largely are dismissive of the petty bourgeoisie, of like that anything good can come of it. And I think that that does come from somewhat from experience. Um, does the petty bourgeoisie need to just be proletarianized? Um, how do you do it? Do you have any good recommendations, you, the audience? Leave them in the comments of what to read on this subject, and maybe you'll see it pop up on the channel. Questions I think that, you know, really do face us. I'm not sure that covering it here on this YouTube channel in 2021, when uh, all previous Marxists have failed significantly to bring the petty bourgeoisie over to the U.S. proletariat so far to date, 
Uh, but, you know, couldn't hurt. Continuing, in the epic of the rise, the growth, and the bloom of capitalism, the petty bourgeoisie, despite acute outbreaks of discontent, generally marched obediently in the capitalist harness, nor could it do anything else. But under the conditions of capitalist disintegration and of the impasse in the economic situation, the petty bourgeoisie strives, seeks, attempts to tear itself loose from the fetters of the old masters and rulers of society. It is quite capable of linking up its fates with that of the proletariat. For that, only one thing is needed. Comment, okay, so we're getting to this pretty rapidly. The petty bourgeoisie must have acquired faith in the ability of the proletariat to lead society onto a new road. The proletariat can inspire this faith only by its strength, by the firmness of its actions, by a skillful offensive against the enemy, by the success of its revolutionary policy. But woe if the revolutionary policy does not measure up to the height of the situation. The daily struggle of the proletariat sharpens the instability of bourgeois society. The strikes and the political disturbances aggravated the economic situation of the country. The petty bourgeoisie could reconcile itself temporarily to the growing privations if it arrived by experience at the conviction that the proletariat is in a position to lead it onto a new road. But if the revolutionary party, in spite of a class struggle becoming incessantly more accentuated, proves time and again to be incapable of uniting the working class about it, if it vacillates, becomes confused, contradicts itself, then the petty bourgeoisie loses patience and begins to look upon the revolutionary workers as those responsible for its own misery. All the bourgeois parties, including the social democracy, turns its thoughts in this very direction. When the social crisis takes on an intolerable acuteness, a particular party appears on the scene with the direct aim of agitating the petty bourgeoisie to a white heat and of directing its hatred and its despair against the proletariat. In Germany, this historical function is fulfilled by National Socialism, Nazism, a broad current whose ideology is composed of all the putrid vapors of disintegrating bourgeois society. And that's the end of that section. So before we go on to the next section, uh, you know, I paused there with questions, you know, that arose in my mind due to the text, which Trotsky then answers. So before we go on to the next section, I want to address some of those because I think that there's a real interesting mix. It's kind of a marbled uh, answer here. I think there's some real strong points and I think Trotsky is way off in other points. So let's try to break that down. Moving backwards, um, I thought that he ended on a very strong note uh, and, and a very astute description. So when the social crisis takes on an intolerable acuteness, a particular party appears on the scene with the direct aim of agitating the petty bourgeoisie to a white heat directing its despair and hatred against the proletariat. This is Nazism, a broad current whose ideology is composed of all the putrid vapors of disintegrating bourgeois society. So we have that in the United States. We have a society, bourgeois society, that is disintegrating, and it is giving rise to all these toxic off-gas, you know, of people who are reaching incorrect conclusions about what caused the situation, and, uh, you know, it, whether it's misogyny or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-black racism, for example, 
all kinds of things coming out of the woodwork in, you know, as this festering mass continues to rot. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's accurate. I think, though, stepping back a little bit, that Trotsky is, how do I say this, attributing a lot more rationality to the petty bourgeoisie in making these decisions. In other words, his solution, I think, is a little bit circular about basically the way that you bring the petty bourgeoisie over to the cause of the proletariat is by the proletariat showing that, you know, basically um, it's saying that, well, you know, it's like the old saying of like, well, capitalism is the system we've got. You know, it might not be great. Many people can admit fault with it. But hey, it's the system we've got. And what are you going to do? You know, what, you got a new system? Um, and Trotsky's basically saying, yes, the proletariat needs to say, well, we do have a new system and it's better than this, so side with us. Here's the problem and why I think that that is, you know, trying to appeal to reason in a situation that is essentially not reasonable. Um, well, first of all, the fact that Trotsky wrote this 90 years ago and we still have not convinced the U.S. petty bourgeoisie of that, what does that mean? You know, that, that the U.S. petty bourgeoisie is more willing to go along with the big bourgeoisie than it is to help the people whose heads it's directly stepping on, its employees, the petty bourgeoisie, its tenants, and its employees at the small businesses, etc. You know, um, that's who the petty bourgeoisie is. It's your landlord, uh, you know, who may own a couple of buildings. It's your boss at the local restaurant who has 15 employees. That's the petty bourgeoisie. It's not the big capitalists. It's, you know, these people who maybe have a few million dollars in net worth or whatever. And, um, you know, they have their little capitalist scheme extracting surplus value from their tenants or, uh, you know, their employees, whatever. They're probably not into, you know, uh, like, I mean, I guess a loan shark would count too. Although usually that's on somewhat of a larger level and, uh, you know, I mean, I think to have enough money, you're probably getting closer to the big bourgeoisie at that point. Anyway, um, that's who we're trying to persuade to get over to our side, which Trotsky is saying is kind of the key here. Um, I'm not sure that that's true. And so also socialism has existed for a long time. Trotskyists are the kings of not real socialism. You know, that old thing of like, well, so if the plan here is to convince people in the petty bourgeoisie to come over to socialism, well, what's the standard thing? They're all full of bourgeois propaganda about socialism and say, oh, they tried that in Russia. It was a miserable failure. And then Trotskyists always say, uh, this is, I think, one of Trotskyists' weak points is, oh, yeah, that's not, uh, that wasn't socialism. That was state capitalism with a degenerated worker state. What? That's not compelling to anyone. Um, now, I think you can take the reverse approach, which is just that was socialism. It was great. Really, everything that wrong that you've ever heard with socialism is a lie. Um, but, you know, and I, I don't think that that's necessarily helpful either, because honestly, a lot of bad things did happen in the Soviet Union. It was still better and it was still a march in 
the direction of progress versus remaining in capitalism. So how do we have that conversation, though, with a petty bourgeoisie, which is terrified by the horror stories that they have been told, some real, some very, very fictional in the, in the way of Cold War propaganda? How do you uh, convince them otherwise? I mean, we can't even convince a lot of socialists today that China is doing anything right, for example. So if the key is convincing the petty bourgeoisie that the proletariat has the way forward, I mean, we, we for 90 years have been trying to do that since Trotsky wrote this. It hasn't been working. And let me say, I'm not a Trotskyist. Trotskyists are Trotskyist. I mean, there are organizations set up to this explicit aim based on the writings of Trotsky. They haven't been able to do it. So... I'm not uh, completely versed in, you know, the entire history of Trotskyism, but are you a Trotskyist listening to this? How do you account for the failure? And don't just put it back on the petty bourgeoisie, unless you're willing to agree with me that this is not an entirely rational process of just convincing them, showing them that socialism is the future. I don't think that a simple calculation like that is, you know, it's a little bit clear, and that if we're, if we're unable to do that, then, you know, uh, the petty bourgeoisie loses patience, quote, and begins to look upon the revolutionary workers as those responsible for its own misery. Well, that's basically where we have always been in the United States. Always. The petty bourgeoisie has, you know, never really relented its hatred and its despair and its anxiety um, that it is putting onto the proletariat, by and large. So it hasn't worked. Um, that's not to say we're completely dismissing everything Trotsky said. We're doing this file, right? But that as a strategy hasn't worked. Um, this is why I tend to look with more optimism towards China. They're doing something. Whether it's perfect, nothing in this world is perfect, but they are doing something and setting up a system that can actually compete with the US, EU, IMF, World Bank debt trap system to help Africa and the Middle East and Central Asia develop independent of Western, you know, imperialism. Whereas Trotskyists, their theory, your theory, if you're listening to this as a Trotskyist, has been more to concentrate on revolution in the first world, as I understand. Well, it hasn't worked. So I think it's time for all of us to lessen our grip on these various sects. You can hear in here, you know, the bitterness of Trotsky against the Stalinists. Some of it I can understand, but we have got to let this go today because nobody fucking cares, really. If, we're, if really the goal today is to get more of the proletariat interested in socialism and more of the petty bourgeoisie interested in socialism, I'm sorry, but nobody cares about this other stuff. We need, we need some... Uh, I want to say rebranding. That's not really it, but just a different line of approaching people, recognizing that um, whatever we've been doing for 90 years hasn't been working. All right, all of that said, I'm going to move on to the next section. The collapse of bourgeois democracy. For, this is from Wither, France, 1934. After the war, a series of brilliantly victorious revolutions occurred in Russia, Germany, 
Austria-Hungary, and later in Spain. But it was only in Russia that the proletariat took full power into its hands, expropriated its exploiters, and knew how to create and maintain a worker's state. Everywhere else, the proletariat, despite its victory, stopped halfway because of the mistakes of its leadership. As a result, power slipped from its hands, shifted from left to right, and fell prey to fascism. In a series of other countries, power passed into the hands of a military dictatorship. Nowhere were the parliaments capable of reconciling class contradictions and assuring the peaceful development of events. Conflicts were solved, arms in hand. The French people, for a long time, thought that fascism had nothing whatsoever to do with them. They had a republic in which all questions were dealt with by the sovereign people through the exercise of universal suffrage. But on February 6, 1934, several thousand fascists and royalists, armed with revolvers, clubs, and razors, imposed upon the country the reactionary government of Dumergue, under whose protection the fascist bands continue to grow and arm themselves. What does tomorrow hold? Note, Gaston Dumergue was a Bonapartist premier of France. He succeeded Édouard Daladier. The Daladier government fell the day after the fascist riots of February 6, 1934. Quick comment, Trump. Back to the present day, 2020-2021. We had... Uh, we had a similar failed revolution, although on a much more feeble scale, the Bernie Sanders revolution. You had a desire for change go foul. The leadership was miserable. Bernie Sanders was a miserable leader. Miserable leader. Completely fucked us over. And we get things like storming the Capitol. This is not a good sign. This is not a good sign. I agree here, though, you know, uh, I'm a critical thinker and I've questioned various points of Trotsky's analysis here, but I agree with the general principle that fascism comes out of stalled revolution, gone stagnant, and then rancid. Uh, you know, you have a basically a situation where, well, bourgeois society is disintegrating. It's decaying. It's on its way down. People know this. People want change. Petty bourgeoisie, they want to keep doing what they're doing. Proletariat is getting crushed. People want change. And if the left won't deliver, the right will. It's just the way it works. Although, the right's change, unlike the left's, is tied to the capitalist class, who, of course, run fascism, ultimately for their own benefit. We went through that in the earlier section about Fascism as a parody of Jacobinism. All right. Continuing. Of course, in France, as in certain other European countries, England, Belgium, Holland, Switzerland, the Scandinavian countries, there still exist parliaments, elections, democratic liberties, or their remnants. But in all these countries, the same historic laws operate. The laws of capitalist decline. If the means of production remain in the hands of a small number of capitalists, there is no way out for society. It is condemned to go from crisis to crisis, from need to misery, from bad to worse. In the various countries, the decrepitude and disintegration of capitalism are expressed in diverse forms and at unequal rhythms, but the basic features of the process are the same everywhere. The bourgeoisie is leading its society to complete bankruptcy is capable of assuring the people 
neither bread nor peace. This is precisely why it cannot any longer tolerate the democratic order. It is forced to smash the workers and peasants by the use of physical violence. The discontent of the workers and peasants, however, cannot be brought to an end by the police alone. Moreover, it is often impossible to make the army march against the people. It begins by disintegrating and ends with the passage of a large section of the soldiers over to the people's side. That is why finance capital is obligated to create special armed bands, trained to fight the workers just as certain breeds of dog are trained to hunt game. The historical function of fascism is to smash the working class, destroy its organizations, and stifle political liberties when the capitalists find themselves unable to govern and dominate with the help of democratic machinery. Comment. Translation. The capitalists will rule with their parliamentary government for as long as the masses accept that. When the masses show signs that, you know, they don't accept or see as valid the rule of that parliamentary government, then the capitalists say, okay, well, we're not leaving. Sick them. Release the hounds, as Mr. Burns would say. The hounds are fascism. Incidentally, before we get back to the text, I've done a number of videos, as I mentioned, about why we can't work with libertarian militias who are exactly the dogs that Trotsky is talking about here. Exactly them. They want to shore up capitalism. They hate socialists. You can't work with them. Literally, their existence is to exterminate us. They are, they are the hunter-killers that the bourgeoisie, the Koch brothers, have been developing for precisely a moment like this when the internet is empowering people to communicate at a point where we can even outrun all the illusions of the U.S. system and we're actually threatening the system. Well, release the hounds. So the moment came for me when I made this realization in 2008 and 9. What was it? It was the Tea Party. Up to that point, you know, I was, uh, there's not a well-defined Marxist left in the United States. And especially if you're, you know, depending on where you are, it can be very difficult to connect with like a single Marxist somewhere, particularly in that time, just there wasn't as much stuff online, social media wasn't there, etc. So there was this kind of like Green Party, Libertarian Party thing. And uh, I don't know, just, you know, the political consciousness wasn't there. The class consciousness wasn't there. Uh, and so you wind up kind of working in these, you know, anti-establishment coalitions. I knew I was left wing. I didn't really see what other choice we had, but to work you know, with uh, libertarians, for example, or at least tolerate them. I didn't like them, but it was like tolerate them because we're all against the system or whatever. And I didn't even buy that really at the time, but I was still on the line of tolerating them. For me, it was the Tea Party and not just the people that they elected into the Congress. Those like 100, 110 utterly reactionary, loathsome, contemptible, right-wing pieces of shit that they elected into the Congress. But the Tea Party movement themselves, the people who would, on their own, on a Saturday or whatever, turn up at the Tea Party rallies. These people were fucking crazy. And it was at that point that 
all of the latent racism and everything else in that proto-fascist movement came out of the woodwork and started to consolidate, which, of course, a few years later turned into the birther movement. Who, had, who headed that? Donald Trump. Four years later, that guy becomes president, pulling these crazies along with him. Anyway, for me, it was at the Tea Party. That was the moment for me where I was like, I hereby wash my hands of anything to do with these people. You cannot work with them. They are, you know, for all the uh, talk of opposing the wars and whatever else, it was in that moment, post-2008 crash, that you saw these, like, right-wing mass movements come out of the woodwork, and they were insane. That was 2008-2009, okay? We're talking about 12 years ago. Trying to still have this discussion of if we can work with them today should be a non-starter. I hope that through watching repeated videos like this, the thought process is clear and people will stop making this error in their thinking. Continuing. The fascists find their human material mainly in the petty bourgeoisie. The latter has been entirely ruined by big capital. There is no way out for it, the petty bourgeoisie, in the present social order, but it knows of no other. Comment having rejected socialism. Its dissatisfaction, indignation, and despair are diverted by the fascists away from big capital and against the workers. It may be said that fascism is the act of placing the petty bourgeoisie at the disposal of its most bitter enemies. In this way, big capital ruins the middle classes and then, with the help of hired fascist demagogues, incites the despairing petty bourgeoisie against the worker. The bourgeois regime can be preserved only by such murderous means as these. For how long? Until it is overthrown by proletarian revolution. And that is the end of that section. And let me say this. I have approached the subject without a conclusion a few times in this recording so far of what is going on in the last half century of United States history. I would posit that the United States has been trying to find, I guess for lack of a better term, what you could call like a sustainable fascism. A fascism that doesn't burn as brightly as Nazi Germany and then, um, you know, expend all of its fuel. Like devour all of its scapegoats so quickly that it collapses in just like a spasm of hate. It seems to me like the United States is trying to come up with like a balanced and sustainable fascism that creates just enough scapegoats to fuel its inequalities and this entire process without burning itself out. How long can it really do that before it just, again, before those right-wing mass movements that it's been keeping on a drip for a while? before they just start to mushroom out of control. I, as, as, as I've said, I think that we are stepping into the point where the right wing is, I mean, those, those fascist mass movements that have been developing in the U.S. I think we're getting into the territory where it's getting dangerously close to them getting out of control. Um, and 
again, going into the spastic convulsions of just uncontrolled um, purging. You know, the bourgeoisie would like to keep workers destabilized uh, indefinitely without, you know, hopefully making a big fuss about it. But in a sustained, controlled way, just maintain their unopposed dominance. But these attack dogs that they're cultivating, um, I think I, it seems to me like they're multiplying to a level that even the bourgeoisie, we're going to have to go through from all this teasing, from all of this controlled stimulation to a wargasm phase. I don't know that they can hold it off that much longer. Things are getting pretty tense, pretty tense. So then what happens? Um, I mean, you know, previous fascist regimes have fallen. Um, what would be the fate of an openly fascist United States? Would anyone step in to stop it? Do we want to find out? Do we have any choice at this point? Do we even have socialist organizations capable of stepping up against it? Let me know in the comments your thoughts. I mean, I want to say that's entirely possible. But um, we're going to find out, I think, the hard way pretty soon. All right. That is the end of that section. Does the petty bourgeoisie fear revolution is the next section. This is also from Wither, France, 1934. Parliamentary cretins who consider themselves connoisseurs of the people like to repeat, one must not frighten the middle classes with revolution. They don't like extremes. In this general form, this affirmation is absolutely false. Naturally, the petty proprietor prefers order so long as business is going well and so long as he hopes that tomorrow it will go better. But when this hope is lost, he is easily enraged and ready to give himself over to the most extreme measures. Otherwise, how could he have overthrown the democratic state and brought fascism to power in Italy and Germany? The despairing petty bourgeois sees in fascism, above all, a fighting force against big capital, and believes that, unlike the working-class parties which deal only in words, Fascism will use force to establish more, quote, justice. The peasant and the artisan are in their manner realists. They understand that one cannot forgo the use of force. It is false, thrice false, to affirm that the present petty bourgeoisie is not going to the working class parties because it fears extreme measures. Quite the contrary. The lower petty bourgeoisie, its great masses, only see in the working-class parties parliamentary machines. They don't believe in their strength, nor in their capacity to struggle, nor in their readiness this time to conduct the struggle to the end. Comment. So here we see a little bit of Trotsky following up on his earlier thought process. And I will say I'm pleased to see um, some evolution of the thought rather than repetition. So he gives an explanation of, again, why the petty bourgeoisie doesn't embrace the interests of the proletariat and proletarian socialist parties. It's not because they fear extremes, but, quote, they do not believe in the strength of the proletariat, 
nor in the proletariat's capacity to struggle, nor in their readiness this time to conduct the struggle to the end. Unquote. So that's Trotsky's take. Again, I posited some different thoughts, which is that they're completely terrified of socialism due to Cold War propaganda, as well as some actual Cold War history. Some people might genuinely disagree with, you know, whatever they saw in Soviet Union or, you know, any other socialist endeavor. Um, so Trotsky is saying here that they don't believe that the proletariat will follow through. I'm not entirely sure that this like resonates with me because I think that although you do hear, uh, you know, it often said like despairing phrases like, oh, and people will just go along with it and the workers will never rise up and blah, blah, blah. I think that there's something else that prefigures this. I think something else comes before this in that logical conclusion. And um, I think it's ultimately more a question of lacking faith in socialism as a system and uh, actually being more desirous of sticking out capitalism due to um, other competing and dominating values such as the Protestant work ethic, the idea of hardship building character, etc. Uh, and, you know, all of the dogma that goes along with that about, you know, socialists just want free stuff, etc. I think that um, it's an entirely different thought process to not embrace socialism because you uh, doubt the proletariat's ability to follow through on it. I mean... That may be an element. It may be an element, for example, of why more people don't, I don't know, vote green or something. You know, why won't they fight? Well, you know, and there is this kind of, well, I'd like to, but blah, blah, blah. But a lot of people wouldn't even like to. So I think more than one thing is going on here and just want to put all of these notes out there for consideration. Okay, continuing with the text. And if this is so... Is it worth the trouble to replace the democratic capitalist representatives by their parliamentary confreres on the left? That is how the semi-exploited, ruined, and discontented proprietor reasons of feels. Without an understanding of this psychology of the peasants, the artisans, the employees, the petty functionaries, etc., a psychology which flows from the social crisis, it is impossible to elaborate a correct policy. The petty bourgeoisie is economically dependent and politically atomized. That is why it cannot conduct an independent policy. It needs a leader who inspires it with confidence. This individual or collective leadership, i.e. a personage or party, can be given to it by one or the other of the fundamental classes, either the big bourgeoisie or the proletariat. Fascism unties and arms the scattered masses. Out of human dust, it organizes combat detachments. It thus gives the petty bourgeoisie the illusion of being an independent force. It begins to imagine that it really will command the state. It is not surprising that these illusions and hopes turn the head of the petty bourgeoisie. Comment. Now that's, that's a great line there. It begins to imagine that it really will command the state, or will really command the state. You know, no, really, really, it's going to be different this time. No, it won't. Well, you know, that's interesting. I hope that 
we can just learn through these experiences. Watching the Bernie Sanders, it's not going to be different. It's not going to be different. And if it is ever apparently different, it, that's going to be an illusion, and they're going to be using you for imperialism. Continuing, but the petty bourgeoisie can also find a leader in the proletariat. This was demonstrated in Russia and partially in Spain. In Italy, in Germany, and in Austria, the petty bourgeoisie gravitated in this direction, but the parties of the proletariat did not rise to their historic task. To bring the petty bourgeoisie to its side, the proletariat must win its confidence, and for that it must have confidence in its own strength. It must have a clear program of action and must be ready to struggle for power by all possible means. Tempered by a revolutionary party for a decisive and pitiless struggle, the proletariat says to the peasants and petty bourgeoisie of the cities, we are struggling for power. Here is our program. We are ready to discuss with you changes in this program. We will employ violence only against big capital and its lackeys. But with you toilers, we desire to conclude an alliance on the basis of a given program. The peasants will understand such language. Only they must have faith in the capacity of the proletariat to seize power. But for that it is necessary to purge the united front of all equivocation, of all indecision, of all hollow phrases. It is necessary to understand the situation and to place oneself seriously on the revolutionary road. So that's the end of that section. And I just wanted to comment on that. Um, Trotsky's sample statement, you know, we are struggling for power. Here is our program. We will employ in violence only against big capital and its lackeys. But with you toilers, we desire to conclude an alliance on the basis of a given program. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously you can't put it in those words. That would be like laughed out the door. It sounds amazingly goofy. But you put it in your program, I suppose. Um, policies which explicitly court the petty bourgeoisie and the peasantry. Yeah, um... Again, it's been 90 years since Trotsky put this out there. So what are we missing? What are we missing? On to the next section. The workers' militia and its opponents. This is from Wither, France, again, 1934. To struggle, it is necessary to conserve and strengthen the instrument and the means of struggle. Organizations, the press, meetings, etc. Fascism in France threatens all of that directly and immediately. It is still too weak for the direct struggle for power, but it is strong enough to attempt to beat down the working class organizations bit by bit, to temper its bands in its attacks, and to spread dismay and lack of confidence in their forces in the ranks of the workers. Fascism finds unconscious helpers in all those who say that the physical struggle is impermissible or hopeless, and demand of Dumerg the disarmament of his fascist guard. Nothing is so dangerous for the proletariat, especially in the present situation, as the sugared poison of false hopes. Nothing increases the insolence of the fascists so much as flabby pacifism on the part of the workers' organizations. Nothing so destroys the confidence of the middle classes in the working class as temporizing, passivity, and the absence of the will to struggle. Le Populaire, the Socialist Party paper, and especially L'Humanité, the Communist Party newspaper, write every day, the United Front is a barrier against fascism, the United Front will not permit, the fascists will not dare, etc. These are phrases. It is necessary to say squarely to the workers, socialists, and communists, do not allow yourselves to be lulled by the phrases of superficial and irresponsible journalists and orators. 
It is a question of our heads and the future of socialism. It is not that we deny the importance of the United Front. We demanded it when the leaders of both parties were against it. The United Front opens up numerous possibilities, but nothing more. In itself, the United Front decides nothing. Only the struggle of the masses decides. The United Front will reveal its value when communist detachments will come to the help of socialist detachments, and vice versa, in the case of an attack by the fascist bands against Le Populaire or l'Humanité. But for that, proletarian combat detachments must exist and be educated, trained, and armed. And if there is not an organization of defense, i.e. a workers' militia, Le Populaire or l'Humanité will be able to write as many articles as they like on the omnipotence of the United Front, but the two papers will find themselves defenseless before the first well-prepared attack of the fascists. We propose to make a critical study of the arguments and the theories of the opponents of the workers' militia who are very numerous and influential in the two working-class parties. We need mass self-defense and not the militia, we are often told. But what is this mass self-defense without combat organizations, without specialized cadres, without arms? To give over the defense against fascism to unorganized and unprepared masses left to themselves would be to play a role incomparably lower than the role of Pontius Pilate. To deny the role of the militia is to deny the role of the vanguard. Then why a party? Without the support of the masses, the militia is nothing. But without organized combat detachments, the most heroic masses will be smashed bit by bit by the fascist gangs. It is nonsense to counterpose the militia to self-defense. The militia is an organ of self-defense. To call for the organization of a militia, say some opponents who, to be sure, are the least serious and honest, is to engage in provocation. This is not an argument, but an insult. If the necessity for the defense of the workers' organizations flows from the whole situation, how then can one not call for the creation of the militia? Perhaps they mean to say that the creation of a militia, quote, provokes fascist attacks and government repression. In that case, this is an absolutely reactionary argument. Liberalism has always said to the workers that by their class struggle, they, quote, provoke the reaction. Comment, that's a blaming the victim line of argument right there. The reformists repeated this accusation against the Marxists, the Mensheviks against the Bolsheviks. These accusations reduced themselves in the final analysis to the profound thought that if the oppressed do not balk, the oppressors will not be obliged to beat them. This is the philosophy of Tolstoy and Gandhi, but never that of Marx and Lenin. If l'humanité wants hereafter to develop the doctrine of non-resistance to evil by violence, it should take for its symbol not the hammer and sickle, emblem of the October Revolution, but the pious goat which provides Gandhi with his milk. But the arming of the workers is only opportune in a revolutionary situation which doesn't yet exist. This profound statement means that the workers must permit themselves to be slaughtered until the situation becomes revolutionary. Those who yesterday preached the, quote, third period do not want to see what is going on before their eyes. The question of arms itself has come forward only because the peaceful, normal, democratic situation has given way to a stormy, critical, and unstable situation which can transform itself into a revolutionary, as well as a counter-revolutionary, situation. Note on the third period, according to the Stalinist schema, this was the final period of capitalism, 
the period of its immediately impending demise and replacement by Soviets. The period is notable for the communists' ultra-left and adventurous tactics, notably the concept of social fascism. This alternative depends, above all, on whether the advanced workers will allow themselves to be attacked with impunity and defeated bit by bit, or will reply to every blow by two of their own, arousing the courage of the oppressed and uniting them around our banner. A revolutionary situation does not fall from the skies. It takes form with the active participation of the revolutionary class and its party. The French Stalinists now argue that the militia did not safeguard the German proletariat from defeat. Only yesterday they completely denied any defeat in Germany and asserted that the policy of the German Stalinists was correct from beginning to end. Today, they see the entire evil in the German workers' militia, Front, i.e. Red Front fighters, communist-dominated militia, banned by the social democratic government after the Berlin May Day riots of 1929. Thus, from one error they fall into a diametrically opposite one, no less monstrous. The militia in itself doesn't settle the question. A correct policy is necessary. Meanwhile, the policy of Stalinism in Germany, social fascism is the chief enemy, the split in the trade unions, the flirtation with nationalism, putschism, fatally led to the isolation of the proletarian vanguard and to its shipwreck. With an utterly worthless strategy, no militia could have saved the situation. It is nonsense to say that in itself, the organization of the militia leads to adventures, provokes the enemy, replaces the political struggle by physical struggle, etc. In all these phrases, there's nothing but political cowardice. The militia, as the strong organization of the vanguard, is in fact the surest defense against adventures, against individual terrorism, against bloody spontaneous explosions. The militia is, at the same time, the only serious way of reducing to a minimum the civil war that fascism imposes upon the proletariat. Let the workers, despite the absence of a, quote, revolutionary situation, occasionally correct the Papa's son patriots in their own way, and the recruitment of new fascist bands will become incomparably more difficult. But here the strategists, tangled in their own reasoning, bring forward against us still more stupefying arguments. We quote textually, quote, If we reply to the revolver shots of the fascists with other revolver shots, writes L'Humanité of October 23, 1934, we lose sight of the fact that fascism is the product of the capitalist regime and that in fighting against fascism, it is the entire system which we face. Comment, well, that just sounds like a recipe for defeatism and failure. I mean, so... The system clearly is taking a new tactic against you, but rather than fighting the thing which is coming directly at your head, you still want to prioritize fighting the whole system. Okay, continuing, and this is back to Trotsky away from the quote. It is difficult to accumulate in a few lines greater confusion or more errors. It is impossible to defend oneself against the fascists because they are a product of the capitalist regime. That means... We have to renounce the whole struggle for all contemporary social evils are products of the capitalist system. When the fascists kill a revolutionist or burn down the building of a proletarian newspaper, the workers are to sigh philosophically, alas, murders and arson are products of the capitalist system and go home with easy consciences. Fatalist prostration is substituted for the militant theory of Marx to the sole advantage of the class enemy. The ruin of the petty bourgeoisie is, of course, the product of capitalism, 
the growth of the fascist bands is in turn a product of the ruin of the petty bourgeoisie. But on the other hand, the increase in the misery and the revolt of the proletariat are also products of capitalism, and the militia, in its turn, is the product of the sharpening of that class struggle. Why then, for the, quote, Marxists of l'humanité, are the fascist bands the legitimate product of capitalism, and the workers' militia the illegitimate product of the Trotskyists? It is impossible to make head or tail of this. Quote, we have to deal with the whole system, we are told. How? Over the heads of human beings? The fascists in the different countries began with their revolvers and ended by destroying the whole system of workers' organizations. How else to check the armed offensive of the enemy, if not by an armed defense in order, in our turn, to go over to the offensive? L'Humanité now admits defense in words, but only in the form of mass self-defense. The militia is harmful because, you see, it divides the combat detachments from the masses. But why, then, are there independent armed detachments among the fascists, who are not cut off from the reactionary masses, but who, on the contrary, arouse the courage and embolden those masses by their well-organized attacks? Or perhaps the proletarian mass is inferior in combative quality to the declassed petty bourgeoisie. Quick comment. We want to talk today about uh, independent armed detachments among the fascists uh, who connect with the reactionary masses and arouse the courage and embolden the reactionary masses by their attacks. Look at uh, mass shootings and other forms of right-wing terrorism. That is absolutely what this is about. They are building morale. They are working themselves up. They are learning lessons. If we don't open our eyes on the left to what is going on with the right, well, you fall in the trap of literally thinking, hey, we can work with these people. You're completely, your head is turned around and you're completely blind. Hopelessly tangled, l'humanité finally begins to hesitate. It appears that mass self-defense requires the creation of special self-defense groups. In place of the rejected militia, special groups or detachments are proposed. It would seem at first sight that there is a difference only in the name. Certainly, the name proposed by l'humanité means nothing. One can speak of mass self-defense, but it is impossible to speak of self-defense groups, since the purpose of the groups is not to defend themselves, but the workers' organizations. However, it is not, of course, a question of the name. The self-defense groups, according to l'humanité, must renounce the use of arms in order not to fall into putschism. Comment, a putsch is like a coup. These sages treat the working class like an infant who must not be allowed to hold a razor in his hands. Razors, moreover, are the monopoly, as we know, of the Camelot du Roi, the French monarchists grouped around Charles Maurras' newspaper, Action Française, which was violently anti-democratic, who are a legitimate product of capitalism, and who, with the aid of razors, have overthrown the system of democracy. In any case, how are these self-defense groups going to defend themselves against the fascist revolvers. Ideologically, of course. In other words, they can hide themselves. Not having what they require in their hands, they will have to seek self-defense in their feet. And the fascists will, in the meanwhile, sack the workers' organizations with impunity. But if the proletariat suffers a terrible defeat, it will at any rate not have been guilty of putschism. This fraudulent chatter, parading under the banner of Bolshevism, arouses only disgust and loathing. Comment. I gotta say, Trotsky makes a lot of good points in this document. 
And I really long for a day in uh, hopefully the near future of the socialist movement that one can discuss and debate the merits of Trotsky's ideas without being a Trotskyist, just as we can discuss and debate the merits and even incorporate some of those ideas into what we're doing without necessarily being an ist, necessarily. That would be lovely. I do not like that all of Trotsky thought has been like cordoned off, and uh, if you're going to consider any of it, you've uh, crossed over into the Trotskyist zone, you know, uh, never to return. That's just not how it works. Uh, I know that there were significant political differences which got enormously elevated between Trotsky and others in the USSR government, but... I think, you know, that was a long time ago. Let's um, maybe move on from this. During the third period of happy memory, when the strategists of l'humanité were afflicted with barricade delirium, conquered the streets every day, and stamped as social fascist everyone who did not share their extravagances, we predicted the moment these gentlemen burn the tips of their fingers, they will become the worst opportunists. That prediction has now been completely confirmed. At a time when, within the Socialist Party, the movement in favor of the militia is growing and strengthening, the leaders of the so-called Communist Party run for the hose to cool down the desire of the advanced workers to organize themselves in fighting columns. Could one imagine a more demoralizing or more damning work than this? In the ranks of the Socialist Party, sometimes this objection is heard. A militia must be formed, but there is no need of shouting about it. One can only congratulate comrades who wish to protect the practical side of the business from inquisitive eyes and ears, but it would be much too naive to think that a militia could be created unseen and secretly within four walls. We need tens and later hundreds of thousands of fighters. They will come only if millions of men and women workers, and behind them the peasants, understand the necessity for the militia and create around the volunteers an atmosphere of ardent sympathy and active support conspiratorial care can and must envelop only the technical aspect of the matter. The political campaign must be openly developed in meetings, factories, in the streets, and on the public squares. The fundamental cadres of the militia must be the factory workers grouped according to their place of work, known to each other, and able to protect their combat detachments against the provocations of enemy agents far more easily and more surely than the most elevated bureaucrats. Conspirative general staffs, without an open mobilization of the masses, will, at the moment of danger, remain impotently suspended in midair. Every working-class organization has to plunge into the job. In this question, there can be no line of demarcation between the working-class parties and the trade unions. Hand-in-hand, hand, they must mobilize the masses. The success of the people's militia will then be fully assured. But where are the workers going to get arms, object the sober realists, that is to say, frightened Philistines? The enemy has rifles, cannon, tanks, gas, and airplanes. The workers have a few hundred revolvers and pocket knives. In this objection, everything is piled up to frighten the workers. On the one hand, our sages identify the arms of the fascists with the armament of the state. On the other hand, they turn toward the state and demand that it disarm the fascists. Remarkable logic. In fact, their position is false in both cases. In France, the fascists are still far from controlling the state. On February 6, they entered an armed conflict with the state police. That is why it is false to speak of cannons and tanks 
when it is a matter of the immediate armed struggle against the fascists. The fascists, of course, are richer than we. It is easier for them to buy arms. But the workers are far more numerous, more determined, more devoted, when they are conscious of a firm revolutionary leadership. In addition to other sources, the workers can arm themselves at the expense of the fascists by systematically disarming them. This is now one of the most serious forms of the struggle against fascism, when workers' arsenals will begin to stock up at the expense of the fascist arms depots, the banks and trusts would be more prudent in financing the armament of their murderous guards. It would even be possible in this case, but in this case only, that the alarmed authorities would really begin to prevent the arming of the fascists in order not to provide an additional source of arms for the workers. We have known for a long time that only a revolutionary tactic engenders, as a byproduct, reforms or concessions from the government. Comment, that's a great point. They'll only stop arming the right-wingers when arming the right-wingers leads to arming the left-wingers. That's it. I also have to comment, I do enjoy Trotsky's framing here of if fascism is the product of imperialist capitalism, and then, you know, fascists implement fascist terror, and then workers' militia are natural, logical, really the only sane response to that. Well then, just like Marx said, capitalism creates the class which will destroy it. So we as socialists, by resisting the urge to arm and defend ourselves, are in fact being reactionary in a sense. We're fighting our own proletarianization because part of becoming that proletariat means feeling the squeeze that we're feeling and reacting to it, responding to it intelligently, not just like a blind reaction, but, uh, you know, responding to the position that we're put in, our new class interests, appropriately and rationally. And that does include forming these formations to defend ourselves from fascists and that's the only way we're going to get any change out of the situation, whether it's full revolution or even a few reforms. But how to disarm the fascists? Naturally, it is impossible to do so with newspaper articles alone. Fighting squads must be created. An intelligence service must be established. Thousands of informers and friendly helpers will volunteer from all sides when they realize that the business has been seriously undertaken by us. It requires a will to proletarian action. But the arms of the fascists are, of course, not the only source. In France, there are more than one million organized workers. Generally speaking, this number is small, but it is entirely sufficient to make a beginning in the organization of a worker's militia. If the parties and unions armed only a tenth of their members, that would already be a force of a hundred thousand men. There is no doubt whatsoever that the number of volunteers who would come forward on the morrow of a united front appeal for a worker's militia would far exceed that number. The contributions of the parties and unions, collections, and voluntary subscriptions would within a month or two make it possible to assure the arming of 100,000 to 200,000 working-class fighters. The fascist rabble would immediately sink its tail between its legs. The whole perspective of development would become incomparably more favorable. To invoke the absence of arms or other objective reasons to explain why no attempt has been made up to now to create a militia is to fool oneself and others. 
The principal obstacle, one can say the only obstacle, has its roots in the conservative and passive character of the leaders of the workers' organizations. The skeptics who are the leaders don't believe in the strength of the proletariat. They put their hope in all sorts of miracles from above, instead of giving a revolutionary outlet to the energies pulsing below. The socialist workers must compel their leaders to pass over immediately to the creation of the workers' militia or else give way to younger, fresher faces. A strike is inconceivable without propaganda and without agitation. It is also inconceivable without pickets who, when they can, use persuasion, but when obliged, use force. The strike is the most elementary form of the class struggle which always combines, in varying proportions, ideological methods with physical methods. The struggle against fascism is basically a political struggle, which needs a militia just as the strike needs pickets. Basically, the picket is the embryo of the workers' militia. He who thinks of renouncing physical struggle must renounce all struggle, for the spirit does not live without flesh. Following the splendid phrase of the great military theoretician Clausewitz, war is the continuation of politics by other means. This definition also applies fully to civil war. It is impermissible to oppose one to the other since it is impossible to check at will the political struggle when it transforms itself by force of inner necessity into a political struggle. The duty of a revolutionary party is to foresee in time the inescapability of the transformation of politics into open armed conflict and with all its forces to prepare for that moment just as the ruling classes are preparing. Comment, after all, we proletarians want to be the ruling class, don't we? Better get started. The militia detachments for defense against fascism are the first step on the road to the arming of the proletariat, not the last. Our slogan is, arm the proletariat and the revolutionary peasants. The workers' militia must, in the final analysis, embrace all the toilers. To fulfill this program completely would be possible only in a workers' state, into whose hands would pass all the means of production and consequently all the means of destruction, i.e. all the arms and the factories which produce them. However, it is impossible to arrive at a worker state with empty hands. Only political invalids like Renaudel can speak of a peaceful constitutional road to socialism. The constitutional road is cut by trenches held by the fascist bands. There are not a few trenches before us. The bourgeoisie will not hesitate to resort to a dozen coups d'etat aided by the police and the army to prevent the proletariat from coming to power. Comment, and we have seen that, I mean... Trotsky was writing this in the 30s. How many times have we seen that in various countries all over the world? That's absolutely true. A note on Pierre Renaudel, 1871 to 1935. Prior to World War I, socialist leader Jean Georges, right-hand man and editor of L'Humanité. During the war, a right-wing social patriot. In the 1930s, he and Marcel Deat led revisionist neo-socialist tendency. Voted down at the July 1933 convention, this tendency split from the Socialist Party. After the fascist riots of February 6, 1934, most of the neos formed the Radical Party, the main party of French capitalism. A workers' socialist state can be created only by a victorious revolution. Every revolution is prepared by the march of economic and political development but it is always decided by open-armed conflicts between hostile classes. A revolutionary victory can become possible only as a result of long political agitation, 
a lengthy period of education and organization of the masses. But the armed conflict itself must likewise be prepared long in advance. The advanced workers must know that they will have to fight and win a struggle to the death. They must reach out for arms as a guarantee of their emancipation. And that is the end of that section. On to the next section, the perspective in the United States. This is from Some Questions on American Problems, 4th International, October 1940. The backwardness of the United States working class is only a relative term. In very many important respects, it is the most progressive working class of the world, technically, and in its standard of living. The American workers are very combative, as we have seen during the strikes. They have had the most rebellious strikes in the world. What the American worker misses is a spirit of generalization, or analysis, of his class position in society as a whole. This lack of social thinking has its origin in the country's whole history. About fascism. In all the countries where fascism became victorious, we had, before the growth of fascism and its victory, a wave of radicalism of the masses, of the workers and the poorer peasants and farmers, and of the petty bourgeois class. In Italy, after the war and before 1922, we had a revolutionary wave of tremendous dimensions. The state was paralyzed, the police did not exist, the trade unions could do anything they wanted, but there was not a party capable of taking the power. As a reaction came fascism. In Germany, the same. We had a revolutionary situation in 1918. The bourgeois class did not even ask to participate in the power. The Social Democrats paralyzed the revolution. Then the workers tried again in 1922, 23, 24. This was the time of the bankruptcy of the Communist Party, all of which we have gone into before. Then in 1929, 30, 31, the German workers began again a new revolutionary wave. There was a tremendous power in the communists and in the trade unions, but then came the famous policy on the part of the Stalinist movement of social fascism, a policy invented to paralyze the working class. Only after these three tremendous waves did fascism become a big movement. There are no exceptions to this rule. Fascism comes only when the working class shows complete incapacity to take into its own hands the fate of society. In the United States, you will have the same thing. Already there are fascist elements, and they have, of course, the examples of Italy and Germany. They will, therefore, work in a more rapid tempo. But you also have the examples of other countries. The next historic wave in the United States will be the wave of radicalism of the masses, not fascism. Of course, the war can hinder the radicalization for some time, but then it will give to the radicalization a more tremendous tempo and swing. We must not identify war dictatorship, the dictatorship of the military machine, of the staff, of finance capital, with a fascist dictatorship. For the latter, there is first necessary a feeling of desperation of large masses of the people. When the revolutionary parties betray them, when the vanguard of workers shows its incapacity to lead the people to victory, then the farmers, the small businessmen, the unemployed, the soldiers, etc., become capable of supporting a fascist movement, but only then. A military dictatorship is purely a bureaucratic institution, reinforced by the military machine and based upon the disorientation of the people and their submission to it. After some time, their feelings can change 
and they can become rebellious against the dictatorship. And that's the end of that section. I just want to comment briefly. This has been a great document for commenting. Hope you've been finding it not excessive, uh, but uh, helpful and interesting. So Trotsky makes a couple of points here about how the next historic wave in the United States will be the wave of radicalism of the masses, not fascism, uh, although the war may uh, hinder that for some time. So unfortunately, what actually happened um, was World War II happened. And in fact, during World War II, there was a record number of wildcat strikes, despite the no strike pledge that the unions gave the U.S. government, you know, we'll be good, we'll help the war effort, we won't go on strike. In fact, there was a record number of strikes uh, <laughs> during World War II. So um, after that, we got McCarthyism. And this was like, the first Red Scare was bad around World War I. The second Red Scare, I mean, really finished it off in the late 40s. The Republicans took the Congress from 46 to 48. They passed Taft-Hartley. That was, that was it. I mean, that was the end of the labor union movement in the United States. Um, there was still a lot of momentum. So, uh, you know, the labor movement didn't actually peak in membership until 1960. So it's still like the coyote running off the cliff. He didn't actually start, you know, falling for a few seconds. Same thing. Um, but you have Taft-Hartley. And then in 1955, and, and all of the anti-communist hysteria that the Democratic Party also went along with and helped to foster. The AFL-CIO, well, merged. Previously, those were separate institutions. The AFL was the AFL. The most reactionary um, class collaborationist, uh, you know, labor aristocracy creating trade federation that there was, trade union federation. And then the CIO was more like a watered down version of the IWW, but they did industrial unionism. Industrial unionism basically became illegal with Taft Hartley in practice because a lot of the techniques that they would use became illegal. Okay. So then by 1955, the CIO was wiped out to the point that it basically got swallowed by AFL, became AFL-CIO, now better known as AFL-CIA, because, well, you can figure that one out yourself. Um, but that was kind of the end of the labor movement. And what do we get after that? We get the new left and the civil rights movement of the 60s. And, you know, these uh, obviously don't result in revolution. And then stagnation in the 70s, neoliberalism in the 80s, the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s, the war on terror in the 2000s, and the post-2008 crash situation in the 2010s, basically the rise of global fascism again, or the far right uh, coming back to roost again over the austerity wasteland that they have created post-2008. And now we're in the pandemic, and this is creating another financial crisis worldwide. What's going to rise in the wake of that? Trump's out of office in the United States, but MAGA people didn't all become Democrats. They're still there. There was just that insurrection at the Capitol in early January. That's not going to stop. I mean, the right-wing terrorism and violence that has been going on for decades now... 
that's going to continue. So as far as the radicalization of the masses in the United States continuing, uh, there were some systemic blows to that that I think actually proved effective. Also, the post-war growth of the middle class and that like you know golden age of social democracy, they got buy-in from the greatest generation, air quotes greatest, and the boomers into you know becoming middle class. The, the whole crux of this document is that you know, which way you can get the petty bourgeoisie to go determines the future of the country towards one of the major classes, the bourgeoisie or the proletariat. Well, they, the U.S. bourgeoisie developed a system that completely got buy-in from the petty bourgeoisie and brought a lot of the proletariat with it. Even now, 40 years into neoliberalism, we're still having a hard time pulling people out of this, saying like, look, you know... <laughs> First of all, we're not going back to that. You only got that because of the threat of socialism in the first place and all of the very militant, radical actions that people did do. That's the only reason we got those reforms in the first place, as well as all the other international issues of Europe being wiped out after World War II, on and on. But we're not going back to that. And now, you know, 40 years into neoliberalism, hey, maybe it's time to realize that Living standards have been falling, 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 and it's just going to keep going. So anyway, uh, as far as the radicalization, not exactly. But on this other note about when the revolutionary parties betray the large masses of people, and when the vanguard of workers shows its incapacity to lead the people to victory, then um, all of the would-be pawns, the farmers, small businessmen, unemployed soldiers, then they become capable of supporting a fascist movement because there's no left-wing leadership that can take them to revolution. Well, that's been the case for a while in the United States. Point to me, I know orgs exist, and I'm not trying to demean or, you know, whatever. I'm not trying to insult anyone. But let's be real. Um, there are no socialist organizations that have been remotely effective in doing whatever it is we need to do. <laughs> Uh, to convince, you know, these classes and subclasses that we can lead them to victory. So uh, I think that the closest that we came was something like a Bernie Sanders, obviously not, you know, the kind of revolutionary we're looking for, but uh, was perhaps an overture to that larger conversation about, I mean, I think people are pretty much... Um, you know, uh, talking about despair in this document, um, people are so deep into despair. I think, you know, something like the Bernie Sanders movement, you saw it pulling people out of the despair where to the point where you could at least have a conversation with them. Prior to something like that, it's like the conversation wasn't even possible. So um, even though, you know, that was a dead end in and of itself, uh, it did have a positive psychological effect on people just the 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 notion the concept the prospect of hey we can stand up for ourselves um that was effective actually at getting people you know thinking about this stuff in actually uh i mean from the point of view of hey we might actually be able to do something if we articulate our interests you know unfortunately bernie sanders took all that and completely flushed it down the toilet by endorsing Joe Biden, uh, failing to do the bare minimum there. So now we're back to this moment of despair. 
And I, we as socialists got to come up with something quick because otherwise we really are going to wind up with full-fledged fascism. We have been building to it for decades. The, uh, I mean, just you can see the Republican Party going further and further right, the Democrats going with it, uh, the growth of movements like the Minutemen, the Tea Party, um, you know, it just it, that sentiment and and that basis has been growing for a while. Um, Trump took it further than ever before. What's the next step? I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But on the other hand, what have we got on the left to offer people an an alternative? I mean, we're there. We're doing what we can, but it's not cutting it. We we have to do something else. All right, so. On to the next section, build the Revolutionary Party. In every discussion of political topics, the question arises, shall we succeed in creating a strong party for the movement when the crisis comes? Might not fascism anticipate us? Isn't a fascist stage of development inevitable? Commenting, wow, (laughs) it's like Trotsky read my mind. That's exactly what I was just talking about. Continuing, The successes of fascism easily make people lose all perspective, lead them to forget the actual conditions which made the strengthening and the victory of fascism possible. Yet a clear understanding of these conditions is of special importance to the workers of the United States. We may set it down as a historical law. Fascism was able to conquer only in those countries where the conservative labor parties prevented the proletariat from utilizing the revolutionary situation and seizing power. In Germany, two revolutionary situations were involved, 1918 to 1919 and 1923 to 1924. Even in 1929, a direct struggle for power on the part of the proletariat was still possible. In all these three cases, the social democracy and the Comintern, Stalinists, criminally and viciously disrupted the conquest of power and thereby placed society in an impasse. Only under these conditions, and in this situation, did the stormy rise of fascism and its gaining of power prove possible. Insofar as the proletariat proves incapable, at a given stage, of conquering power, imperialism begins regulating economic life with its own methods. The fascist party, which becomes the state power, is the political mechanism. The productive forces are in irreconcilable contradiction not only with private property, but also with national state boundaries. Imperialism is the very expression of this contradiction. Imperialist capitalism seeks to solve this contradiction through an extension of boundaries, seizure of new territories, and so on. The totalitarian state, subjecting all aspects of economic, political, and cultural life to finance capital, is the instrument for creating a supranationalist state, an imperialist empire, the rule over continents, the rule over the whole world. All these traits of freedom we have analyzed, each one by itself and all of them in their totality, to the extent that they became manifest or came to the forefront. Both theoretical analysis as well as the rich historical experience of the last quarter of a century have demonstrated with equal force that fascism is each time the final link of a specific political cycle composed of the following. The gravest crisis of capitalist society, the growth of the radicalization of the working class, the growth of sympathy toward the working class, and a yearning for change on the part of the rural and urban petty bourgeoisie, the extreme confusion of the big bourgeoisie, 
its cowardly and treacherous maneuvers aimed at avoiding the revolutionary climax, the exhaustion of the proletariat, growing confusion and indifference, the aggravation of the social crisis, the despair of the petty bourgeoisie, its yearning for change, the collective neurosis of the petty bourgeoisie, its readiness to believe in miracles, its readiness for violent measures, the growth of hostility towards the proletariat, which has deceived its expectations. These are the premises for a swift formation of a fascist party and its victory. So, commenting, where are we in this checklist in the United States? Uh, the extreme confusion of the big bourgeoisie, check. It's cowardly and treacherous movers, maneuvers aimed at avoiding the revolutionary climax. Got that too. The exhaustion of the proletariat. Yeah, I think we're in that stage now. Growing confusion and indifference. Yeah, I think we're stepping into that now. The aggravation of the social crisis. That's probably going to be the, the name of 2021. The despair of the petty bourgeoisie. Yearning for a change. Collective neurosis. Readiness to believe in miracles and the petty bourgeoisie's readiness for violent measures. I think that's yet to come. So I think we're somewhere, personally, I think we're in the exhaustion and aggravation point. That's going to be 2021. Uh, we still have yet to see the despair of the petty bourgeoisie and its readiness to believe in miracles. That's that irrationalism component of fascism. And it's ready for violence. The growth of hostility towards the proletariat. So I think that those might be 2022, but we're getting really, really close. That's my opinion. Continuing. It is quite self-evident that the radicalization of the working class in the United States has passed through only its initial phases, almost exclusively, in the sphere of the trade union movement, the CIO. The pre-war period and then the war itself may temporarily interrupt this process of radicalization, especially if a considerable number of workers are absorbed into war industry. But this interruption of the process of radicalization cannot be of a long duration. The second stage of radicalization will assume a more sharply expressive character. The problem of forming an independent labor party will be put on the order of the day. Our transitional demands will gain great popularity. On the other hand, the fascist reactionary tendencies will withdraw to the background, assuming a defensive position, awaiting a more favorable moment. This is the nearest perspective. No occupation is more completely unworthy than that of speculating whether or not we shall succeed in creating a powerful revolutionary leader party. Ahead lies a favorable perspective, providing all the justification for revolutionary activism. It is necessary to utilize the opportunities which are opening up and to build the Revolutionary Party. And that's the end of Trotsky's Fascism, What It Is and How to Fight It. Again, uh, I think at this last paragraph, um, Trotsky, I think, failed to anticipate the gravity and the enormity of World War II. Um, you know, this last section was written, I believe, in 1940. Yeah. So... Um, you know, I mean, just the way that World War II changed the world and then the Cold War following that, the thick, thick blanketing of Cold War propaganda in the United States, the measures that the bourgeoisie was willing to go to to buy off the petty bourgeoisie, to try to buy off the proletariat and to 
utterly just suppress and just exterminate the communist movement in the United States in the 40s, 50s, and, and on. I mean, it really just drove it into like fringe splinter groups for the most part, which is kind of where we still are today. We're maybe just starting to reform now with the aid of the internet, turning this from, you know, the uh, kind of like crazy patchwork of fringe groups back into something approaching, you know, a, uh, a, a mass proletarian movement that is generally interested in socialism. One can hope. So uh, I'm not necessarily, by the way, like, you know, faulting Trotsky for, you know, failing to produce or failing to predict uh, or be able to foresee the, the enormity of uh, World War II. But, um, yeah, no, just crazy stuff. Um, it's hard for me to, you know, do this document and comment on it without... I mean, one of the, the reasons that I, I did select this document is because, you know, we're in a terrible situation in the United States, as are many countries, and, you know, wanting to analyze what have major socialists said in the past about situations like this. And, um, you know, the big question is, can we do anything about it? Um, the Democrats just took power. Are they going to do anything? I mean, again, the stage we may be in, exhaustion of the proletariat, growing confusion and indifference, aggravation of the social crisis. Um, what will, you know, will the Democrats be able to deliver any kind of change that can stave this off? Are they interested in doing that? Or do their 1% handlers and owners really just want to unveil fascism? Do, do they really feel like you know, that's, that's the next step. We can see that it's already well on its way to forming. Whether or not it will get free reign and full control of the state, we don't know. And on that note, I'm going to leave it there. We will have more audiobooks and discussions coming up in the near future. Thanks, as always, for checking out the video, and we will catch you in the next one. And that's the video. Thanks to our current patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen or just support us financially, you can go to patreon.com slash socialism for all and sign up for a monthly donation. You can also follow us at facebook.com slash socialism, the number for all used to have a page at for all and it got throttled to death by Zuck here on YouTube. Please click the like button, subscribe button and the notifications bell. Please leave a comment if you can, and please share our video wherever you're online, your Twitter feed, your Discord servers, Reddit subs, etc. All of that helps more people to see this content, whether it's in the YouTube algorithm or just posting it on other sites. All of that's helpful. All of you out there supporting and promoting this content makes it all go that much more smoothly. We need to end capitalism, normalize talking about socialism today. And uh, it's really kind of our only hope for a better tomorrow. Thanks for all you do, and we will catch you in the next video.